Hello and welcome to episode 67 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. This is your co-host Russ on this side and over there. This is Mike and uh, yeah, you sound pretty chipper over there, uh, you know. Uh, like we're going to have this uh, fun episode, but I don't know. Well, we'll see. Uh, <laughs> it was kind of an odd week of, of, uh, of listening, listening and other yeah. things, apparently. But yeah. I have to say, today yeah. was about the nicest weather uh, you could imagine true. here. And we've been preparing for the rainy season. It's it's you know at the doorstep. But today it was like 25 degrees Celsius, sunny, yeah. breezy. I was outside. My tomatoes are ripening up. My hot peppers are on the way. I barbecued a whole chicken out there, ate that thing, you know, bottle wow. of wine. And here I am. I'm in a good mood. Well, we'll see what happens with the music, but... Uh... Yeah, I know. <laughs> it kind of put us off a little this week. Although, I have a few interesting things to say about the jazz, though. I liked it. Oh, so there's some we'll good see. stuff in there, yeah. And, yeah, uh, yeah. well, just just yeah. as we, we had a false start tonight, we were about to start, and we were interrupted by Mike's CD delivery. Yeah, yeah there you go. The truck pulled up, and uh, yeah. Yeah, it, it took me about 10 minutes to get all those CDs into the house, because you know what it's like, you know, <laughs> yeah. when you get... Uh, you know, they just kind of dump them on your porch like that. That's that's the uh, the way they do yeah. it. They can't use a drone because it would have to be the size of an like an Air Force kind of like <laughs> <A> military chopper. <laughs> chopper, you know, in order to, uh, <laughs> to, to to carry it all. So they yeah. use trucks. <laughs> yeah. Well, when the rains do start, you're gonna have enough to listen to on your new discs there. So that's good news. I'll have a, a plenty to listen to. Yeah. yeah. Got to get some new speakers though. Coming coming up. I'm planning to. I'm, planning to finally buy those but it's gonna it's gonna hurt <laughs> with the uh although cause the reason i want to get these speakers now is because the end is really really weak Ooh. and uh the speakers are still the same price they've always been so i figure this is going to be a good time yeah. to do it but maybe i better do it like soon <laughs> <Better do> it <laughs> sooner. before they boost those prices up they'll be out of my reach yeah before there's a you know like a paper cone or some kind of shortage Oh, Everything you read about is all Th kinds of shortages. That's been a problem with stereo equipment, hasn't it? There's yes. a chip shortage. It's and now you can't shortage. buy like receivers. and you know. It's hard to get anything that has a chip. Uh, I was looking, I was thinking of getting another network player. Forget about it. <laughs> yeah. You can't get one. Uh, they're all out of production. There's no new models uh, in stock. The used ones are going for uh, double almost what mm. they were before. Uh, I just bought this uh, amp. I don't know, was it the year before? For my second system up here, right. here. I bought that for, uh, well, about US $500. It was a good, right. a pretty good deal. I looked, the same one now is more than $1,000, you know. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's tough times. Uh, Better hold on to that. Better hold, hope it. <laughs> holding on to everything that I have, yeah. So, and I'm, yeah. Yeah, you were recommending that Yamaha amp to me too earlier in the year, and then suddenly it went out of production like yeah. when I was about to buy it. Yeah. <laughs> but then yeah. there was a Sony made one that I also liked. I was I had see yeah, I watch movies too, so I wanted like Blu-ray things. Right. But I also want the surround SACD capability. And the only mm -hmm. way to get that, unless you're gonna pay two thousand, three thousand dollars for a an SACD player by itself, yeah. <laughs> which is insane. Um, you can only get that on a sort of a Blu-ray player because right. like Sony kind of made all that equipment, so they still keep it alive in their yeah. their equipment, which is nice. So I get to hear like surrounds. I could even play audio DVD on this thing, and that's like a format that's dead. It's just right. they don't make those anymore. And uh, so that's it's nice to have something like that where you can just kind of play anything. Yeah, I'm glad I invested in my 
Luxman gear years ago, and I got the SACD yeah. there. You, I'm sure you got the real I'll... audio file thing. I've got like <laughs> mid range audio. File. I'm going for mid range audio file now, but you know, he's he's high class over there. Well, that will probably outlast <laughs> I have a me. Smaller house, <laughs> and uh, yeah, we'll see. I, I like to keep this other system going here too, but uh, but it's hard to get anything new now too. So yeah, you know, we'll just see. I'm a single man. I can't get that married tax break. <laughs> <laughs> you know that. <laughs> See, but the thing is, you get you, you don't get the tax break, so you can't afford it. But then, if you get married, your wife won't let you get it, so you just lose both ways. <laughs> sort of. Yeah, you've got other considerations <laughs> then too. So yeah. Anyway, be happy mm -hmm. with what we have, and uh, thanks to streaming that we can listen to all of this uh, music one way or the other. Although I'll have some specific complaints about that format this evening uh, when we get oh. into our selections. I'm looking forward to hearing that actually. Okay. I had to stream a classical recording this week too because the CD <laughs> didn't arrive on time, which is kind of a pain. Well, I uh, right. I've got everything set up now that uh, my music follows the same electronic path, whether it's CD or streaming, so it's indistinguishable, right. at least to these aging ears. Um, well, yeah, for the classical though, I know I like having the booklets so that I nice. can get some extra information because yes. I'm, I'm usually on this show. It's not like we're doing all Beethoven and Mozart and I already have this yeah. information. A lot of these composers are new to me. I don't know who they are. I want to know something about them before That's I get on and start talking about them. Be the you know? problem with the jazz this evening, believe it or not. Ah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All uh, right. But we'll get to that uh, in time. Uh, before we do, uh, I'd like to remind everyone uh, listening out there that in the episode description, you're going to find links for Spotify and Apple Music to all the music we'll discuss. Also at the top of the description, uh, speaking of streaming, you'll find the full episode playlist. That's all the music we're going to discuss tonight in one place on Deezer. Uh, that's our preferred streaming platform, CD quality, a uh, nice selection of jazz and classical music. You can uh, follow us there at username Adult Music Podcast. You can also listen to the podcast uh, there as they have podcasts as well. Uh, if you don't see the full description uh, or links on whatever app or platform you listen to us on, then uh, come on over to our host site, Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. I uh, can find us there and all the links for every episode are clear and easy to follow. If you do enjoy the podcast, please follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform you're listening to us on. Take a moment. Uh, just uh, give us a ranking. Give us a five-star ranking. It's free. Uh, helps us yeah, out. five stars, please. Uh, or write a short review. Uh, either or will help us get listed in the browsing category recommendations. That helps us grow our audience, which we're always happy about. Uh, you can also now find us on Facebook. We've got a page there. Just look for us, Adult Music Podcast. Uh, you can also get the upcoming playlist, the episode, and uh, assorted videos uh, related to the artists and a little bit of humor that we post during the week. Uh, we'd like to see comments. Yeah, uh, I, ha I haven't been posting there. I got to get on that more. I don't know. Uh, get busy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I put two yeah. videos up there this week. Uh, so you can okay. get in touch with us through there. Or if you want to contact us uh, directly, any comments, questions, we'd be happy to hear from you. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. All right. And that's it. I guess we're ready to go. We're ready and, to uh, We may as well in. start. Jump in. Because we had a lot to listen to oh, this yeah. week. The first thing we're going to talk about. I don't think we about, need to talk about it in too much detail on this one, though. No, uh, no, we don't. But yeah. I want to go. I want to kind of 
uh, talk up some of this a yeah. little, you know. Anyway, this is a, a new recording. The first classical music record we're going to listen to is a new recording of the complete Sibelius symphonies. That's um, f- about four hours of music. So um, <laughs> I actually started listening to this more than a month ago. And even then it was kind of hard because um, I, okay, before we get into, okay, well, let me tell you what this is first. It's Sibelius, uh, complete symphonies by the Oslo Philharmonic. And this very young conductor, Finnish conductor named Klaus Makela, he's 26 years old, and uh, he was just appointed as the uh, conductor for the uh, Concertgebouw in uh, Holland, in the Netherlands, we should call it now, I think. And um, that's a that's a big appointment for such mm. a young guy. So he's highly touted as this up and coming conductor. And uh, this recording was released on Decca Records. Now, before we get into this, I just want to say, listening to like the entire s- symphonies of, of one composer, um, I, I have a friend, and he once uh, told me how he had um, downloaded the entire uh, life works of um, the contemporary composer Arvo Pert. Okay. And I, I found this um, horrifying in a way, like because he <laughs> has them all, and now he's going to listen to them all, and like you know, th- this this guy's been composing for f- like probably sixty years now, or something, maybe fifty <laughs> years. So that and there's a lot of music, and when he wrote it matters. So you right. kind of need some kind of context to be listening to this music, otherwise, because it isn't just like. This is the kind of thing that bugs me about, like, say, like, retrospectives or say you go to see, like, the complete paintings of Monet at some museum mm. or something like that. And, um, well, they'll, the thing is, at the, at the, at a, at a, an exhibit, they'll sort of organize them in a certain way so that you get some sort of narrative out of it. But if you're just randomly listening to pieces by this point, it's not, they're not, you know, classical works aren't really like, um, like rock bands where you can just kind of listen to it. And well, unless you're like a scholar, you can't really just place it in its time. And especially if it's a contemporary composer, because it's happening as we speak, you know, Um, a guy like Arvo Parrott, we think of him as with his um, very deep still, his Tintinabuli style, his spiritual music, but he started out uh, as a pretty uh, harsh sounding composer back in his symphony number two, symphony number one days in the sixties and seventies. So it's kind of helpful to know when a lot of these pieces were written. And it just takes time because these are Sibelius symphonies are big, they're big bone, they're heavy. And just to hear all of them, back-to-back is too much so I spaced them out over the course of over a month and I was also kind of busy so I couldn't listen to them all the time anyway because we were still doing other recordings for the podcast that we wanted to talk about while I was listening to this so this week I did the the most of the um the listening okay so Klaus Makela conductor um he's uh 26 he's highly touted he's got a big bright future ahead of him um but this recording I don't know I it, it, but it got great reviews. So I was really excited to hear this, right. actually. I was like, oh, this is going to be great to go through these um, uh, Sibelius Sisters, which both of us love, by the way. We've, mm-hmm. I remember many nights at your uh, place uh, listening to the uh, the second symphony, our personal favorite yeah. one, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, just the fantastic brass sections of that that we yeah. love so much. And, um, you know, so we were really excited to hear this, you know, it's always great to talk about Sibelius, but, um, I thought this recording, all of these works left something to be desired, some more than others. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, let's get down to it. Symphony number one in E minor. Um, okay. All of these, um, recordings were made in the concert hosts in Oslo, Norway. Um, <coughs> excuse me. 
and uh, let's get to work here. Anyway, the symf first symphony, um, Andante ma non troppo allegro energico, it has an introduction. It starts with a famous drum roll and flute solo. Um, the flute gets a little more solo time if the timps drop out, there's a pause. The flute right away, I notice, has a lot of room ambience on it. So I'm thinking, oh, this was recorded pretty far away. They must be afraid that the orchestra is going to come in and really just be this dynamic force. But it sounded like it, this was recorded in a large, empty hall. And the solo was uh, slowly taken, which makes the surging entry of the orchestra really powerful. That was nice. Big contrast in speed. This is a pretty fast movement and the way he takes it. And that's not going to be uh, the case with a lot of the other symphonies. He generally takes the later ones much more slowly. Yeah. yeah, The timpani and strings don't register as well as the brass do. And they sound a bit cloudy, in fact. The percussion don't impact on this um, particular work. That's not true of the rest of the works, but in this particular work, this it was just it was recorded on its own. I, I checked, and uh, it just doesn't sound so great. Um, I was just listening to this, thinking of my old uh, Colin Davis uh, conducting the London Symphony Orchestra recording on RCA. Those were made in the late 90s and the 2000s, and they sounded spectacular, and I wasn't getting that kind of impact here. Um, here, the the timpani and the percussion sounds kind of like distant thunder. This particular work uh, has terrific energy, though, and the brass playing sound really good. Um, quiet passages are well picked up. Um, the harp accompaniment in the second theme is very crisp sounding. Uh, thematic material is sharply etched as far as rhythm goes, but when the louder passages return, a lot of detail is lost in a rather muddy overall sound. Did you think so, by the way, with yeah. this? I didn't yeah, find it okay. has great clarity, and I also thought the soundstage is not great. In other words, the sound yeah. is is not multidimensional. Uh, I didn't get a sense of space from these recordings. Right. Uh, it sounds rather flat to me. Um, yeah. The generally clear, not average, particularly really. yeah. detailed. And um, as you were saying, when you told me we were going to do these, I started playing them in the background on my smaller system, you know, just right. to get the general, just how are the tempos and the interpretations going to compare to the other recordings I have. And I thought, okay, they're a little bit different. Um, so I'll get some, you know, sort of focused listening when we get closer to it. So this week I listened to two of these every night on my big system and I was waiting to be, you know, wowed and knocked back, like you said, when we used yeah. to listen to the other ones. And I wasn't, yeah. so I was like, "Let me check. <laughs> no, let me check all the controls. Do I have everything set flat? Is there something going?" No, I just, um, yeah. The the overall sound impression was sort of muted. Uh, it does improve so. a bit on uh, other symphonies on the set, but this a one, little bit, yeah. yeah. But it never really gets really, really good. Is the so thing. I was kind of mystified with the rave reviews of uh, the performances yeah. and the recording. Um, but. Well, the performance of this particular symphony, I thought, was really good. It just kind of let down by the... Uh, it doesn't really impact because of the sound, you know, the, the way it really should. Mm. Um, I thought, yeah, there's a great climax at the end of this first movement. The pizzicati at the end and the lower end don't register fully. Okay, on to the second movement, taken slowly, really nice, well-shaped lines, muddiness and lack of detail in the strings again. That really drove me crazy. All right, there are seven of these symphonies. I'm going to go through these pretty quick because it's not <laughs> – and give you like a general 
overview. Mm. Um, in the scherzo movement, the third movement, the thump and the timpani that open this movement betray the cloudiness at the lower end of the recording. Again, um, I do like the way Makela lets us hear the accompaniment as well as the thematic material. He's got a good balance um, in the way he balances this. I think he really likes this particular work, the first symphony, mm. a lot um, because he seems to really conduct it with a bit of passion. Um, he especially accents the tuba or very low brass. And the timpani and the third movement sound like they're in another room, unfortunately. <laughs> so <laughs> that doesn't work too well. The finale, um, this comes in well. There's the fuzz of the brass sound is slightly muted by the recording. Um, winds all sound clear. Higher instruments register well. The pacing of the movement is very swift. And I do like the original way Makala presents string accents with this kind of swashbuckling verb. Verve. Verve, verb. See, because I'm an English teacher. And that word is just, I say that word every day. Verve. Like the For jazz record label. The record label, yeah. Yeah. Um, this is a, okay, a well-realized um, performance. I like that a lot, but the recording lets it down. Mm. So I said at the end, beautifully realized performance marred by a muddy recording at the low end. Too much space between the mic and the orchestra, or the space is too big and the low end sound is getting lost. Okay, symphony number two, uh, my personal favorite i like this and i mm -hmm. like number five the best those are the ones that really that i really gravitate towards this one sounds better the strings come in clearly it's nicely phrased woodwind theme dances as the brass resonate well um the bass seems clearer in this particular work lovely opening um i thought this was one of the better probably the best performance on the entire album really um mm -hmm. uh which is a relief because it's also my favorite of the symphonies. Right. Um, judging by the reverberation at the strings, the room is a bit smaller or they've done something to uh, improve the sound. Makala takes a slowish, deliberate tempo in this first movement of the second symphony. Um, mm -hmm. Quiet parts are beautifully quiet yet audible. And he has the patience to pace himself so that once climaxes arrive, they have an impact, which is impressive for a very young conductor like him. It sounds like he's... Uh, thought about this a bit um i like the way this pulsing strings come across at the six minute 30 second point um yeah the the recapitulation comes feeling like an arrival which is nice um good structural communication happening second movement with the very famous um pizzicati um opening um starts with a timpani roll and the pizzicati theme that sounds like a bass line very very quiet on this recording but comes across with presence. Um, it's slow and deliberate, and that's okay here, but as we go through the symphonies, he's going to take a lot of these movements a little too slow, mm -hmm. and it's going to start getting on my nerves. But right here, I'm, I'm accepting it. <laughs> Maybe I had to listen to them all uh, you know, individually, um, which I kind of did, but it's, I was still remembering the other ones. Um, the theme appears in the winds, and uh, strings finally take over. Um, this is a beautifully shaped movement, really. Um, let's see. I love the sudden bursts of warmth in this movement and the piece and that this whole piece altogether offers. Um, and then I go into this analysis, which I'm going to skip here because we got to get through these. Third movement, vivacissimo, rushing strings taken at a good pace. Uh, the tippity accents register well. There's some chest cavity resonating sound there. I approve of that. <laughs> At a minute and 45 seconds, the B section on this ternary form movement starts. It's a pastoral theme with reedy winds carrying the main melodic material. 
and we get the uh, rushing strings again at three minutes, and the pastor wins again at four minutes and 50 seconds. This leads to a climax that arises by spilling into the fourth movement, always a magical moment as it is in this performance too. Um, the pulsing bass create a roiling sense, and I've always loved the brass fanfare that we hear just after the opening string theme. It doesn't have the presence here that it has in Colin Davis's recording, but it's very good. Uh, more of a piece with the overall texture than something that stands out for its own spectacularness or spectacularity, mm -hmm. whatever that word would be. A lot of tension is built up to this point, and this movement has to release it all and does so in stages, making the listener feel like he's being transported to higher realms as it goes. Um, the piece already sounds like it's releasing tension at 3 minutes and 30 seconds in this particular recording. Um, I want to get to the end. Um, the melodic material repeats at the end. Um, but the momentum of the accompanying strings won't let it settle into a strong cadence. The orchestra gathers steam, repeating the theme in different sections, and then a slow crescendo begins. Um, and I thought Makala um, conducted the ending of this very maturely. Um, there's a nice shift to a new key at 12, the 12 minute mark. The condensed material gets suspended. We hear the pizzicati bass again from the second movement, and the strings play a tremolo figure in the heavenly ending cadence. The rest of the orchestra builds up, and we finally get the final solid climax, which is not so emphatically played. So the sound on this is more focused, um, bass impacts. Um, it's a good performance that I'll probably return to, but I still like Colin Davis better, as well as uh, Simon Rattle and the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra, and the... Um, uh, Osmo Vanska and the Lati Symphony Orchestra. Those are my three favorite recordings of these works. I want to mention this is Symphony Number no. Two is probably the best realized performance and recording on this album. I think it's all downhill from here. <laughs> I was a little disappointed in the third movement um, yeah. with the low bass sort of uh, dips. That yeah, like uh, they don't really scoop enough, and like they. They they should really like come down and scoop you up and bring them in. Uh, and I actually thought, compared to some of the other tempos on this album, this one it actually seems to rush a bit. And um, I, I would actually yeah. like him to have milked that sort of uh, brass climax a little bit more, uh, especially because, as you said, it goes into the fourth movement um, yeah. with the fanfare. But the part before that, uh, I just wanted a little bit more sort of enjoyment and drawing out of that uh, in the interpretation. But um, that was the only part of the, the performance of all the works, uh, all the movements in this work that I didn't really uh, feel satisfied by. Yeah. Again, I want to repeat, this guy's 26 years old. And I thought they should have had him do, oh, maybe two of these instead of like doing the entire seven, a set of the entire seven of them. Well, it just sounds like it's too much. I think I mentioned to you too, like you said, the first work was done on its own uh, yeah. or separate and then they did the rest of them. But it's got to be a big task when you, if they've done these in succession. Um, yeah, they were all done the same, I think within the same month. Yeah. That's um, a lot of, because yeah, these are big works that you really need to think about. And uh, I don't know, I thought that was just way too much. Maybe they were saving up, <laughs> not letting out too much for each one, knowing that, uh, you know, more, there was a lot more to come. I don't know. Yeah, or uh, they figured, uh, you know, it was like 
what do you call it, lockdown or like the coronavirus right. times, and they just had all this time and decided, hey, let's just record them all. Yeah. But it does kind of sound sometimes like they're kind of um, just marking yeah. time in a lot of these, and that's really sad because these are pretty spectacular works. Well, as you say, the first two are two of my favorites and ones that yeah. I play the most, and then I realized why I don't listen to the... <laughs> <laughs> three, four, three, four, well, so much. Well, as we well the go first on, yeah. three are very romantic. So three yeah. would kind of be a, of a piece with the the first three, and then the mm -hmm. last four are kind of a little more modernist. But the fifth, I really love. It kind of the fifth is a, a good bit, one. Yeah, it's it's a bit of a it's it's got this kind of sort of spiritual theme to it. I actually read about that one, so I kind of know a bit about it. I think and three needs more brass, though. Like, that's what I wrote in my comments. Uh, I said, that's why I don't listen to this one all the time. Because after one and two, I wondered if I, you know, if I skipped the movement because where did all the brass go? Um, yeah, it's also kind of minimalist. Like the chords don't change all that much in the uh, mm -hmm. in the fifth. It kind of sticks on the same chord for a long right. time. And you just get all this kind of running sort of rhythms. All right, we'll get to that in a minute. First yeah. symphony number three, taken at a fast speed, almost upbeat. I do like the way the sound blooms in this when the rest of the orchestra comes in at this speed. Uh, the first thing comes out is inviting and cheerful. And that's kind of a realization to this piece that I hadn't had before. I never thought of this mm. as a cheerful opening. Um, good orchestral detail. And I'm happy about the bass sound on this one too. All right, second theme, Lonely and Searching. And the movement chugs along at a good, lively pace. Uh, nice sense of timing in the pauses. And the quiet moments are really quiet. And you won't want to listen to this in a car. <laughs> Let's just say that. <laughs> You'll miss a lot of stuff. Get a lot of road noise. Because um, there there are classical works that are great to listen to in a car. Like uh, orchestra, any orchestral Baroque work is great because it's yeah. always sounding. Or some big Beethoven symphony. Not this. Not this particular performance, anyway. Um, woodwinds come across as bird-like, and uh, the timbres of the individual woodwind instruments register vividly. Um, I said here, an excellent realization and recording, though not as big-boned as Davis's, and I prefer the big-boned approach. But that's taste. I won't fault him for that. Um, I feel like the timpani at uh, the five-minute mark could have registered more... Five-minute and 40-second mark could have met, registered more uh, vividly. They're a bit recessed, uh, perhaps because Makela hears them as more of an orchestral texture than an impact-making gesture. Um, I feel like definition is being lost on crescendos, and this sounds like a fault of the recording again. Mm. Uh, the whole mass of sound blurs together, and it's not bad or dissatisfying, but it just drew my attention, and that's kind of a, a bit of a warning sign. I still enjoyed this movement. Going on to the second movement, um, this is really more of a theme in variations. Very quiet brass and quietly thumping pizzicati in the basses begin the movement. Um, the winds take the famous woodwind theme slowly, more slowly than I'm familiar with, um, and in complete contrast to the first movement. I like the way the bass pizzicati really thump out of the speakers in this. Um, the melodic theme glides gently in the strings at the three-minute mark. Um, Makala doesn't always highlight the melodic theme, knowing we'll be listening for it. Instead, he draws out some of the orchestration, as he does after the 3 minute and 30 second mark. At around the 6 minute mark, the very high variation on the theme and the woodwinds may be too slow. Kind of, I felt like, you know, the bicycle teetering and threatening to fall <laughs> over because it's not moving fast enough. Although these days, people just stand on bicycles and they don't fall over, so... <laughs> Anyway, it steadies when the uh, low string pizzicati start accompanying. And there's a lot of wind arabesques 
The very last variation ends with a very slow resolution. Beautiful sensitive playing, maybe a bit slow, but it's successful. I'll give him that. Moderato, third movement. This starts by recalling the first two movements themes in a wispy fashion and then comes to focus very gradually as a 6-8 time dotted rhythm. And the dotted rhythm is going to generate a lot of the material and is the focus of the movement rather than any melody. Um, it, ch it changes, uh, actually, uh, time signature a few times. It points to 30 seconds. We get something to hold on to in the strings, no longer in 6-8, but in 4-4. Four, four. It's a regal theme. I like the bass accompaniment to the theme at around the 6 minute 10 second mark, which Makela draws out enough for you to notice it. Orchestral detail is kept close to the foreground in the next section. And the theme in the lower s instruments um, also are kept close to the foreground. The rhythm straightens out gradually. It's always audible as the thematic material heads to the brass. The rhythm chugs to the end of the movement when we get a big bone brass cadence. This is a pretty compelling take of the third symphony that made me rethink it a bit. So, so far, I'm kind of a little disappointed by the sound. And uh, Makela is offering some... Um, um, alternative um, ways of thinking about this and I'm like, ah, oh, this is pretty interesting. Um, then we get to Symphony 4, which is pretty much, I'd say, the, the most difficult one because it's sort of dark. And mm -hmm. I think Makela loses a bit of interest here. I think he likes the more romantic symphonies <laughs> more, and that makes me feel like he should have only recorded those. Um, the fourth symphony starts with a good throaty bass sound and decrescendos down to a barely audible sound. Um, this is fairly slow and a glacially moving tempo for this icy cold movement. We hear muted brass at 2 minutes and 50 seconds, but only faintly. Um, they come in full body to 3 minutes and 15 seconds, sounding great. Uh, the violins sound a bit disembodied, not grounded, when the lower strings aren't involved, like they're sort of like in the stratosphere somewhere, getting lost mm -hmm. in the air of the room. Um, they're blending too much with the room reverb, is what I want to say there. The natural reverb of the room. Uh, at 4 minutes and 45 seconds, there's a warm melody in the low strings that comes up sounding solid and bassy. Um, Pizzicati and the bass register register percussively despite their um, quietness. Um, let's see. The engineer found a good balance for this piece, I thought. This movement stays slow in tempo and ends quietly. Uh, sounds registers nicely. Second movement. Uh, upbeat and woodsy with uh, tremolo strings accompanying. I'm enjoying the bass presence uh, at this point and we're finally hearing woodwinds too often responsible for the woodland evocations that Sibelius's music so often brings. Um, the movement, like the previous one, sounds a bit slow, which allows us to luxuriate more in the tone, you would think but if it keeps happening you kind of <laughs> want it to start moving a bit. Um Let's see. The movement ends suddenly on an interrupted string line and a very light hit on the timpani. The third movement is uh, tempo largo. Oh, it's, um, the slow movement starts with a woodwind melody underlined by string harmony. The tempo comes across as glacial again, but not so slowly that the musical line is lost. But there is the risk of that happening. Um, Makala always does have this musical line in mind, though. So he's, he's thinking of the structure. The harmony and voice leading are easy to contemplate in the, that case, and there are some nice harmonic details in the various passages. Um, I like the pulsing effect and the accompanying strings at the end of the movement. Fourth movement, Allegro. Um, a lot of contrapuntal passages in the whole symphony, and this starts with one of them in the strings. 
There's some metal percussion in this heard for the first time. Rushing strings at a minute and eight seconds, a minute and eight seconds, um, which anticipates the last movement of the fifth symphony. There's a transition at uh, two minutes and 33 seconds to a ticking rhythm in the strings, marking time back and forth, kind of like a pendulum I, I kind of thought of. Um, a string melody plays along with it. Metal chiming percussion adds to the climaxes. Um, we get pizzicati being handed around the string section on the two notes used in the ticking rhythm, and it all eventually ends in the ending chords playing emphatically on a warm sounding but forbidding strings. Again, this isn't one of my favorite of Sibelius' symphonies. It really needs a good conductor to put it across. And we've got a good conductor here, but we, we need a great... Yeah, he, and he may very well be a great one, a future great one, but... You need someone, I think, with a bit more experience for this piece. Mm. Um, I listened to this with more patience and attention in this recording than I ever had before, probably because I was I knew I was going to talk about it on this uh, uh, program. But uh, it comes across as cold, which is um, it's which is intended, I guess. And good recorded sound, performance on the slow side that nevertheless registers powerfully and forbiddingly. All right, my other favorite of the um, Sibelius symphonies, number five. Uh, the opening uh, grand spacious wind section is taken magnificently in the opening of the first movement, giving a sense of grandeur. Uh, the wind melodies are heard clearly to be extending each time they repeat to the false cadence at about 56 seconds. There are a lot of missed climaxes in this movement, meaning that they're written into the score that way, building up a lot of tension. The tempo here feels deliberate, not free, but metrical, and that's not good because um, it's it kind of sounds like more like beating time, mm -hmm. uh, and I think that hurts this particular performance. Um, I, I thought at the at this point I was said okay this is going to be part of his interpretation let's see where he takes it. Um, instead of cadences, we get this rocky motion that's going to pay off in the third movement. Um, the buildup is beautifully detailed. The buildup to this rocking sort of rhythm, that the buildup to the cadence that we don't get, that leads to a sort of a rocking rhythm, um, is beautifully detailed, but leaves it a little behind in drama. Uh, the tempo seems to, to slow a bit in this next section, leading to the buildup to the next mix, missed cadence. Again, a smooth, almost legato approach to the missed climax at around 5 minutes and 10 seconds. And the rocking figure is a bit blurred here, um, which I didn't like. I, I like that to be clear. I think you, everyone would, really. Mm. Uh, the bass registers really well in this recording. Um, the tempo seems too slow for this quiet searching material that gains energy at 6 minutes and 25 seconds. I thought at this point, the movement is lacking in drama and sense of forward motion. You don't have a lot of harmony going on in this movement. Um, and so it needs a kind of momentum, a sort of forward motion, like a rhythmic, like sort of impetus. Mm -hmm. And I'm not getting that, that urgency that's required here. And I think that's going to hurt this um, performance as a whole. Um, Makela seems more interested in exploring the combinations of instruments used in the orchestration, which are interesting, and drawing those out. But I, I don't think that's what really this particular piece is about. We finally manage a slow approach to a cadence at 8 minutes and 35 seconds. Um, and though it has been snuck up, on, snuck up on, it comes across grandly, like the opening of the symphony, and Makela sticks with the broad image as the material speeds up. 
this um, section releases some of the enormous tension, and the trick in the symphony is to release all the tension by the end of the third movement. Um, he's, uh, Makala smears the orchestral sounds here, though they lighten up at 9 minutes and 15 seconds for the rushing material. Again, I mentioned this sounds too slow to have the joyful feeling that I think it's supposed to have, because it's like it's suddenly free in a way. It's reached some kind of climax. Um, this apparently isn't what Makala is after in this, so I'm being patient here. Um, string figures sound too mechanical to me, too deliberate at 12 minutes and 30 seconds. You can check it out there. Uh, Makala manages a winding sound when the thematic material comes in. There's a speeding up at 13 minutes, 34 seconds, and we burst out of the previous torpor to something grandly stated by brass. I'm not getting a sense of the beating timpani in the quieter sections. That's it's really driving the rhythm forward. At the end, they register well, though. Uh, the movement doesn't end with the bang that it can end with and does end with on the Colin Davis recording, which is probably my favorite one. Although I do like the Vanska one, too, with the Lati Symphony. I should mention Vanska has recorded these, uh, Osmo Vanska has recorded these... Um, symphonies twice, once with the Lati Symphony Orchestra, which is a set that made his name as a conductor, and then he re-recorded them with the Minnesota Symphony Orchestra, which has the benefit of being on Beast SACD, but, and they're good performances, but uh, the Lati ones are very special, so I mm -hmm. would recommend those. Anyway, second movement, Andante Mosso Quasi Allegretto. This opens also slowly, and unfortunately, that's what we're going to get in the rest of the works on this album. And we still have like an entire CD to go after this. Um, it's almost like they ran out of steam at this point, and he's, uh, he, he spends a lot of time beating time. This movement is a set of variations that are nevertheless headed somewhere. Uh, the theme is what uh, varies as it tries different approaches to the material. It's kind of It's almost like this movement is trying to like find some combination. It's trying to crack a safe. It's, you know, so they can get at some secret. Mm. That's the way I kind of hear it. A wind chord in the accompaniment is accented between 30 seconds and one minute. I had never noticed it in the score before. The theme gets, uh, so that was nice. The mm. theme gets something stronger together when it's played as a chorale harmony at three minutes and 30 seconds, gains momentum and starts moving. We, we keep hearing this brass warning emerging. The first time is at uh, 4 minutes to 4 minutes and 12 seconds. And that slows the move, movement of the uh, thematic material down. Sort of like it's flagging the theme down to say no entry. It's kind of like the police telling you you can't come in here. Um, a pizzicato approach is then tried at 5 minutes. The theme gains playfulness and energy at 6 minutes. And you can hear a single brass note arising in the background warning it off again. Uh, something more flowery, warm, and romantic emerges at 6 minutes and 40 seconds. Uh, the brass tone builds to a full statement at 17, 7 minutes and 15 seconds. We hear it dominate up to uh, 7 minutes and 38 seconds or so. Uh, the pizzicato strings then play quietly. Um, and then we hear the forlorn romantic string version of the theme play at the end, accompanied by a wall of brass harmony that won't allow it through. The movement ends without resolution, but goes without much pause into the third movement. This is a very famous transition. Sort of like in Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. He can go in directly into the third movement. The music here starts rushing at a comfortably fast speed necessary for this. The articulation is very clear. It's a bit slow. 
At a minute and 20 seconds, we hear the grand arrival of the rocking theme, which is now that we heard in the first movement, but now it's circling, it's complete, that we heard in the first movement. There's a lovely wind melody rather low in the texture at a minute and 45 seconds that could register more strongly. Then at the 2 minute and 10 second mark, we get an even warmer statement of the circling theme, with strings in the accompaniment rather loud. Um, the quiet rushing strings at 3 minutes and 50 seconds are rather intriguing on this recording. They're very quiet, but again, they're sort of measured. They don't quite rush the way this really needs to, sort of like it's like an element of nature, maybe like water or wind through the trees. Uh, the circling theme in the lower strings at around 4 minutes and 40 seconds registers very clearly. I feel at this point, though, momentum has been lost, and it's very important for this movement and work in general. The, the rhythm really has to carry this work. It has to, there has to be a constant forward motion. There's a nice false cadence at 6 minutes and 20 seconds. From there, a buildup of tension begins when the circling theme comes back in the brass. It's still pretty slow. There's a magical part where the brass circling theme starts widening its harmony until at the end we're left with the opportunity to reach the cadential climax we weren't allowed to hear at the beginning of the first movement because it got interrupted. It's approached cautiously in the composition, like the protagonist of the work can't believe it's going to happen, and we finally get those last widely spaced out chords. They're very famous. There's like a pause between each one, mm -hmm. as though he wants to be really careful and make sure the cadence happens, because he didn't. it didn't happen in the first movement. Uh, give us the final long-sought cadence that we... Um, didn't hear in the first movement. Makela conducts these last chords in line with the tempo he's used throughout the movement. They register well, but one doesn't have a great sense of arrival one can get from a great performance. Again, I want to go back to Davis, Rattle, and um, Vanska with the Lati Symphony. Symphony number six, another kind of tough one for me. This one is... um. It, it's not like sumptuously orchestrated, so it's, it's kind of like... Um, but, but it's kind of lean, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of, you know, we have to change our expectations a little for this. Um, it's very string heavy. begins with a haunting string melody. Romantic sounding. The opening material is beautiful and rather churchy sounding, like a hymn. And some winds start peeking in at around the 1 minute and 30 second mark. Good full bodied sound, which we hear when we hear the first timpani at around a minute and 50 seconds. Makela is giving this a floating pleading sort of quality. The brass make an appearance at 2 minutes and 30 seconds. We get some of the rushing type of figuration we heard at the end of the 5th Symphony's first movement. Sounding a bit fleeter here. And we get locked into a repeating figure at the 4 minute and 30 second mark. Now, when you get something like this, it, it's... you have The conductor has to do something to keep it interesting, because it just keeps circling around and repeating. But it rather starts to lose interest in the straightforward way Makala presents it. He doesn't really um, do anything to make it mm. interesting or just kind of show you, oh, we're stuck. You know, you got to get this sense of being stuck or something because the, the, the music can't move at this point. But Sibelius maybe put a little bit of tension in it, you know, somehow. Mm. Um, but Sibelius himself comes to the rescue with the orchestration that fades in and out. I'm starting to get a sense here that Makala will mark time when he's not inspired. But I don't want to damn this performance. It's pretty good. It gets a bit of warmth when we hear the low strings in the sixth minute. There's some lovely soaring material in the seventh minute to about seven minutes and 30 seconds where it dissipates. 
Nice brass at 7 minutes and 45 seconds onwards. It registers nicely, but without force from the speakers. It's more mere sound than impact, but the movement ends solidly. Second movement, Allegretto Moderato, opens with the winds. Again, the tempo sounds rather slow. I mean, like I said, this is going to be a problem for the rest of the album. Makala is reveling in the harmony rather than the line here, though there's a sense of the line. He's always thinking of that. He marks time in this. There are some pretty great harmonic and orchestral, orchestrative moments in this movement, like the swells in the third minute that lead to the forward movement in the chugging strings. But again, those chugging strings are marked time, and we don't get that sense of thrust that moves music forward. Um, in Sibelius's later symphonies especially, this kind of rhythmic momentum is really important. It's also necessary in the second symphony and works like that, but not as much. It's not carrying that symphony. Here it is. Listen to the five-minute mark. These repeating string figures sound just like that, repeating string figures. They need energy. They need spark. They don't have them in this performance. As a result, the wind figures that the strings accompany don't get a sense of being spun out of the texture. Uh, another nice inconclusive ending, though. It, it's kind of it's it's almost kind of like this the um the the strings are kind of like sort of rotating like and they're gaining mm. momentum 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 and something comes out of them it's sort of born from them but you don't really get that sense here because there's no real momentum that's going to make that thing happen mm. anyway let's move on third movement the opening figure is all of Apogituras, the material that follows has got a kind of water spray quality to it. Uh, Makela marks each one of the Apogitura notes. I don't know if they're Apogitura. I'm calling them Apogitura. They're kind of like a grace note sort of thing, which comes back after a minute. Again, marking time in the second minute. This is getting rather predictable. It takes the tension away. If I had to guess, either this was recorded late in the day or uh, Makela isn't really inspired by the symphony. This is the sixth. Fourth movement, easily memorable opening string theme. Sounds hymn-like with its full close at the end of the phrase on the tonic. It's reassuring. This is the warmest movement of the symphony. Um, Makela manages to get some excitement going here. He's obviously inspired by this movement. It's conducted at the tempo familiar to me and has a bit of us from other recordings and has a bit of spring to the string figures at the end of the third and beginning of the fourth minutes. In the repeating bass figure at 5 minutes and 31 seconds, you can hear the propulsion I've been missing in the rest of the work. By the seventh minute, when we're hearing the opening string theme repeated with chugging strings beneath it, we've got something appealing going. The rhythm dissipates and we're in a warm, romantic-sounding hymn-like section at 8 minutes and 20 seconds or so. So, soft touching ending in the strings. Okay, so Makala finds his footing in this work in the fourth movement. That's a little too late, I would say. <laughs> I feel like the first three movements lacked inspiration, though they're well enough executed and balanced. Um, sound is good throughout. Warm where it needs to be well detailed. Okay, the uh, spectacular and very powerful Seventh Symphony. This is a one-movement work. That it's, it's a continuous work that has all four movements compressed into 20 minutes without stopping. And I don't know much about this work. It's I, it's something I really want to know more about. I need to read about it or something, but I haven't found any kind of uh, you know monographs that, that talk about it in detail. Anyway, it's supposed to be really powerful. And this um, 
performance is not powerful. <laughs> Let's just say that. All right, ominous opening, which is great, with uh, gentle timpani taps giving way to a rising figure. We get woodwinds at one minute, uh, nicely shaped, but Makala prefers slow tempos here. Um, that might help in this work where musical events build quickly. A tender theme emerges just before the three-minute mark. This theme could soar a bit more. Uh, it's nicely shaped and has got a bit of warmth to it. There's already a big climax at five minutes and 30 seconds, but I'm sorry, so much is missing from this. There's majesty written into the material, and it registers, but there could be so much more. I just feel like uh, it's, it's, this performance isn't reaching the peak that it could reach. Mm. Um, other recordings do reach that peak. Again, Davis, Rattle, Vanska. This is uh, too prosaic, not monumental enough. Uh, the music gets playful after this. It's too measured to dance. Good sound quality, though. Second movement, Vivacissimo, and then Adagio. Um, this is continuing. This is really isn't really a second movement. It's just sort of a second section. The music just continues. Um, it's marked Vivacissimo for the beginning part, but he's not even playing this Vivace. He's much slower than that. Again, too deliberate and metronomic, an issue I've had with uh, the Sixth Symphony especially, but a few other works on this set. The music starts moving at a good energetic speed at the end before giving the baton to the next section. The third movement, Allegro Molto Moderato, has a slower 3-4 theme, very much in the Sibelian woodland conjuring idiom. Again, I'm calling this the third movement because it's a separate track, but it's really still the same continuous work. Good tension is built up by the 2 minute and 20 second mark of this section. The music maintains good momentum and builds well to the end of the section. And then the fourth, um, shall we call it movement, um, Vivace, Presto Adagio. We leap into this final section with the lead up to the big bone theme at a minute and 10 seconds as the culmination of the buildup of tension. Uh, we get to the string themes just before three minutes. They sound fairly dramatic. They fade. We get the gentle woodwind themes at 3 minutes and 45 seconds, which builds up to the powerful ending, but it's not as powerful as I'd like. I'm disappointed by this, really. I wasn't gripped by this particular symphony, as I should be. I listened to events unfold without much involvement. This should be a powerful work in its mm. compactness, but the juggernaut quality it conjures just isn't present on this recording. I thought this was a total miss, really. Um... Next comes um, Tapiola, which is a tone poem. Um, it's been a real favorite of contemporary conductors. Um, Sibelius has, um, he composed a lot of tone poems, but um, contemporary conductors tend to be uh, choosing this one a lot. This is the last tone poem, or orchestra work, perhaps even, that uh, Sibelius wrote in 1926. And then he went into a long 30-year retirement where he didn't write anything else. <laughs> one of the big mysteries of um, <laughs> classical music yeah. uh, his history. You know, he, he I guess he felt like his uh, style, he'd reached the end of where he wanted to go and music was changing too much right. for him to really want to go into some of the areas where it was being taken is what people say. Okay, um, the work portrays um, Tapio, the forest spirit mentioned throughout the Kalevala, and the tone poem, it's not really a story. It evokes the Finnish woods with its desolate landscapes, icy ruggedness, and the strange play of light through the trees, I guess, in the mountains. It has an eternal quality of myth and really follows the Seventh Symphony in its compositional style. 
It starts the same way with a timpani roll, louder than in the symphony. There's a lovely repeating figure in the strings in the second minute as the winds intone deep chords under it. It sounds like pulsing invisible life in the landscape being evoked. It's pretty magical. But Makala isn't doing much to color this any more than the score does. He's really relying on the score to do the work for him. And it does, I guess, enough, but I feel like uh, the conductor can inject a bit more. Um, he's not evoking much, just showing us the orchestration. And in this case, I wanted to hear Osmo Vanska and the Lati Symphony Orchestra's interpretation. There are evocative colors from the orchestra, and particularly the low reed instrument, which has a bit of growl to it. There's a nice orchestral detail registering in the seventh minute. Timpani register powerfully on the recording just before the seventh minute. We get some mystery out of the strings at nine minutes and 30 seconds and onwards. This section comes to abrupt and abrupt end with a timpani crash at around 11 minutes and 30 seconds. The previous material intensifies in volume. Um, at 15 minutes and 27 seconds, the volume suddenly lowers to very quiet string figuration which quickly crescendo into a harmony that must have stretched boundaries of what was happening at the time in tonal music at the 16-minute mark. The sound here is eerie. There's a commanding timpani and brass motif, uh, and the eerie music drops out. I'm thinking we must be in the deep forest at this point, at 17 minutes and 30 seconds, with the eerie odd harmonies. They wind down to a comfortable tonality, and the set of chords pairs us for the final cadence which follows a quick crescendo and decrescendo. Again, I'm missing any sense of what um, Aristotle called a telos or an arrival, like the sense that there's a place where this work is going. Uh, Sibelius certainly thought of that and composed it that way, but I didn't get a sense of arrival from this particular performance. It sort of drags on, though the eerie mo moments register well at the end. Okay, the last three tracks on this fourth CD are just fragments of um, a work that Sibelius was writing, and they're just kind of described by numbers. The first one is HUL 1325. It starts with a timpani hit. It's only about a minute long. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just atmospheric, really. Um, I don't have a way to describe this. Um, <laughs> it's a little reminiscent of Tapiola. Uh, perhaps uh, Sibelius was intending to work this material a different way, but we don't know. It's just sitting by itself. Um, HUL 1236-9 is 17 seconds. And it's got like a dancing quality <laughs> to it. And that's it. We don't really know where this was going to go. So it's just weird. These kind of things are just yeah. disembodied. And the last one, 13 minute, HUL 1327-2, that really catchy title. It also marked Allegro <laughs> Moderato, this one. Uh, starts with a droning bass woodwind with a woodwind harmony sounding above it. Uh, pizzicato strings follow and play alone. When they stop, the long-held bass note returns in a higher register. The woodwinds reveal more of the idea, and it ends on a tonic, which is interesting. <laughs> but it's an odd ending to this set mm -hmm. of uh, symphonies. It's kind of an anticlimactic ending to this entire album. Um, Sibelius symphonies, in, the, in summary, let's just summarize. Sibelius symphonies can be really exciting, mm -hmm. but you don't get too much of a sense of that quality from these performances. Like, if I'm... Um, I'm a big classical music enthusiast and people are always wanting me to, um, because I teach about it too, people are always wanting me to recommend works to them. Oh, tell me a work to listen to. And I, you know, if I recommend them a Sibelius symphony, I've got to tell them also which recording to listen to because if they listen to this one, they'll say, oh, what's the big deal? It really mm -hmm. does matter, yeah. the recording you listen to. 
um, you don't get too much of a sense of that quality, the exciting quality from these performances. There, a lot of them are conducted at tempos on the slow side, except for the first two, which are very good. And we mentioned the first one, Symphony 1, isn't really recorded very well on the low end. Um, later, in the later symphonies, Makela starts marking time quite a bit. And he doesn't really have the resources with his conducting yet. I, I would say it's a matter of experience to put this music over the top. Nevertheless, these are all well-shaped and balanced performances. There's really no issue with the uh, conductor's ability here. He's probably deserving of his um, Concertgebouw appointment. Um, and he's a promise. And the um, set of recordings um, puts the promising talent before the public. Um, I found these performances reassuring in that they're going to be in good hands, but I'd still go back to the past for the performances I like best. I really wish he had recorded maybe only two of these and released that and really had them, you know, put a lot of you know work into them instead of just recording them all. So I would say this set is it's average to good and sometimes very good, but overall it's pretty disappointing. Yeah, that's and how that's I, I feel because yeah. um, I. You know, when I listen to um, symphonies, particularly romantic kind of things, and then moving on later, uh, I'm looking for sort of dynamic things. And I'm a, as a brass player, uh, I always want that dynamic brass and some interpretation of mm. that that pushes me along. And so I have a lot of recordings of uh, these two. I have Russian Philharmonic, and uh, I forget what other ones. I have the uh, Ashkenazi. Uh, directed ones and you know so I, I'm oh, wow. quite familiar with these and I like uh, one two those are even older than the Davis one <laughs> yeah uh, but they're very yeah. they're very dynamic and dramatic right. and uh, one yeah. two and five are my favorite for the brass and when I you know after Beethoven when I'm looking for these kind of you know uh, romantic and more modern symphonies with brass and I go to Sibelius and then our favorite uh, Nielsen and Nielsen, then uh, yeah von Hombo, you're right. Um, von Hombo. We got to introduce the public to von Hombo, but they, yeah. I wish they'd re-record those symphonies so we can kind of get them on, you know? Yeah. I'd love to talk about those. So maybe I came to this with just too much expectation or hoping that they would be better or something, you know, different above what I have, you know, already heard. But yeah, they're not bad in any way. They're competent, but uh, just I feel like the interpretation doesn't add much extra or is lacking in some areas of where things could have lifted or been emphasized to bring something new to them. And um, mm -hmm. so I, I felt, yeah, just kind of uh, uninspired at the end of some of them, especially the... Especially the later ones. Yeah, yeah the, the later ones. And um, the, the, they're not bad. And then, But I also felt the overall uh, sort of... Uh, sonics of the recording also didn't help out uh yeah. getting things out that may have been more dynamic uh if they had just sort of jumped out of the uh dynamics of the recording uh i don't want to say too much for such a young conductor other than maybe this was too much to bite off at one uh you know yeah. set uh maybe you should have just done uh, you know two of these and then come back to them uh other symphonies in a different yeah. recording project or something. So um, I don't know if that I don't know if that was his intention that he wanted to do all these, or it was part of the you know the new position or the recording company's uh, idea. But uh, I could have done with uh, two of these done more focused 
uh, in mm. recording and also interpretation. Uh, but they're out there now, so let's see what he does. Uh, you know, in the future, in future yeah, I will keep an ear out for him certainly because I'm kind of curious to see you know, yeah. where he's going to go. I mean, uh, um, yeah. if this is going to lead to more recordings of these, you know, kind of Scandinavian recordings, I'll be happy because I want to hear more of them and lesser known works as well. But uh, as far as the, how these will stand up against previous performances, well, it's a tough, you know, it's a tough comparison uh, here. So. I want to say I read two different reviews of this, both from uh, England, um, and um, they were just glowing reviews of this uh, set. Mm. And it's just not that great, really. So I just want to say to listeners, I mean, I mean, they're, they're pushing this conductor as the next big thing, and that's all well and fine. I mean, sure, I'm sure they know because they um, hear him live and things like that, so they they can probably spot whether he has a real talent or not. But we're just going here by the uh, recording. And I just want to say to our listeners, um, if you really want to know what a recording sounds like and we're reviewing it, listen to us. You don't even have to believe <laughs> us. We're telling you what points to listen to, like when we when we mention our thing. So you can actually go to the recording and hear it yourself because we've, um, mm. you know, and see, and see if you agree with us or not. So I think we're um, in a good place for that. Well, we, we have you want no, to be listening to the adult music podcast, <laughs> and you are. We're not getting compensated for our views either way, so uh, you're going to unbiased. Yeah, well, that, that's uh, another thing, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, if people don't like us, it's not like anything bad's going to happen. We're not being paid now. So. It could just be that we're old enough to have listened to recordings that uh, some of these other reviewers haven't listened to. I don't know. Um, but. Well, I think, I don't know. I, I know a lot of the... Uh, I didn't read the gramophone review for this. I don't know what they said, mm -hmm. but um, they have a lot of reviews that have been there forever. So I think they, um, yeah, uh, you know, I think they'll kind of have a good ear for it. But um, I, I don't know what happens at these magazines. Are they told you have to give this a good review or something? I mean, we really don't know. Yeah, who knows how it works? Okay, I can't believe that uh, we're just about an hour into the podcast and I finished that entire four disc set. <laughs> there are other albums that I've talked about for an entire hour. Yeah. But well, uh, we squeezed it all in. Okay, now we have a, a trumpet theme this week. So we had right. Sibelius Brass. And uh, the next recording is uh, Shostakovich. I'm going to do Jazz and Variety. And this has a lot of uh, brass on it, too, um, as well as a lot of other things. Right, <laughs> one of the things about reviewing like the Sibelius Symphonies is they're works that I really love. So I'm highly, highly opinionated about them. Yeah. I know more or less what I want to hear. Now, I'm not saying, you know, the the conductor can, um, you know, in, kind of make me hear the work in a new way as um, um, Makila actually did in the Third Symphony. Um, but uh, if certain things aren't going to happen, um, I'm not going to like it, basically. <laughs> so that's what happens. Exactly. Not the case here. Uh, <laughs> Shostakovich, uh, uh, this is um, light music that he wrote. This is um, yeah. called Jazz and Variety. Yeah. This was fun. Um, it was another it side was of fun. Shostakovich um, where the material and rhythms are very light, but he still slaps you with that weird harmony that he's so good at. And uh, I found yeah, it kind that, of enjoyable. And also that, yeah, that sense of irony too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They found a way to kind of express irony in music via popular song, him and Mahler and a few others too. Yeah. Anyway, this album is called Jazz and Variety. Um, it's um, by the Singapore Symphony Orchestra. Oh, who knew? Who knew? Conducted by Andrew Litton, oh, yeah. who um, really just uh, trot, trot, goes globe trotting and conducts around, everybody. Yeah. He does the uh, 
Yeah, the Dallas Symphony too. I know he's down down there sometimes. I always like his and touch. He's, I, yeah, he he brings I do up too. really he, good um, things. He does, and he's actually a great. He, he I've, I usually hear him in company of Stephen Huff, the um, oh yeah, the yeah, yeah. Uh, pianist who who's actually a knight now. He's just been knighted by the Queen. He's now wow. Sir Stephen Huff, and you know. I really hate that. I can't call people sir. <laughs> yes, sir. You know, this is such a British thing. You know what? And I'm just going to say it because we're American. British people aren't listening to this podcast. I don't know why. Oh, there's but some. I'm going to be obnoxious some? about it. Stop with the sirs. There, there are one or two. I feel but that we're mostly um, we have mostly an American audience. Knighthood has almost become like the way uh, they slap UNESCO. Uh, yeah. ratings on sites. There's so many places that are UNESCO <laughs> World Heritage that it doesn't have much meaning anymore. You know. So anyway, yeah, but what bugs me about it is they give all these people who have contributed to British culture these kind of knighthoods, and meanwhile, everybody else in the world is just like Joe Schmo doing their job. That's know? right. It just kind of weirds me out a little bit. I think. You know, this and this next great work by this great composer whose name is just this. You know, he's not a star. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, as with many composers of the 1920s and 1930s, Shostakovich combined popular and serious styles in his work, at least in the early days. Um, oh, by the way, I should mention this is on the Beasts label, and it's an mm. SACD. Um, pretty interesting <laughs> to mm. have this in that high-quality 96 uh, kilohertz sample yeah. sound. Yeah. Okay. Now... The first three movements are the Suite for Jazz Orchestra Number One. There's another one, but we don't hear the number two. Uh, uh, composed in 1934, um, this was composed um, just after the success of um, Shostakovich's opera Lady Macbeth of Mitsensk, uh, which is a work that was a huge success for him. And then I think about a month later, he got castigated for it by the. Uh, Soviet uh, government, and it was like the beginning of his <laughs> lifelong troubles with the uh, the Soviet government. Um, this piece was written in response to a competition rather pointlessly aiming to elevate jazz above mere cafe and dance music. <laughs> By the way, you need to know, when you hear the word jazz in this case, for Europeans and for Russians at the time, the word jazz was a term loosely used for all sorts of light music from the USA, not just what we would think of as jazz. Right. Okay, so waltzes, polkas, this, all of this sort of thing, this light music would be under the jazz umbrella in Eastern yeah. Europe and Russia. Okay, so yeah. we're not actually going to hear any actual jazz really no, in this. Nothing swings piece. in this suite. I can tell you that. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, it's no, there's no swing in this. Uh, yeah, nothing in these movements can really be called jazz or elevating either. <laughs> but it is fun. It's yeah, all it fun. They're fun, yeah. Um, like the, fun. The band is made up of three saxophones, two trumpets. So there you go. There's our trumpet theme. Mm -hmm. Trombone, banjo. Are you Ooh. sitting down? Hawaiian guitar. Where'd you get one of those? I don't know. Piano percussion, violin, and double bass. I don't know. The Hawaiian guitar made its way into the Soviet Union somehow. Did they have Russian spies but in the, Hawaii at that time? I don't know. Wow. Maybe, but this is the early days. This is before they really um, kind of started getting paranoid about everything. Yeah. Um, so, th so things were getting in. Okay, the first movement is a waltz, and it's an umpapa waltz. <laughs> okay, that's some um, pretty nasal sounding trumpet, muted trumpets, all right, and sax. 
It's fun. It's pretty comical. The orchestration is creative. I like the use of chiming percussion and the multiple voices of, on different melodies toward the end. So you get a, you get a little about that Shostakovich, the uh, the accomplished composer in the uh, counterpoint at the end of this really light work. Second movement, polka. A xylophone plays the theme. That's another. <laughs> um, is that a xylophone? I didn't mention a xylophone. I think it I is. don't know. Maybe it's, it says percussion, so I guess the xylophone would count as uh, yeah. the percussion here. It sounds like a, it's got that bony xylophone sound. Uh, the rhythm is pretty simple, so are the themes. Um, entertaining and fun. And the last movement is a foxtrot. I've always liked that name, the yeah. foxtrot, you know. Yeah, foxy uh, comes ladies on very, Yeah, those foxy ladies <laughs> doing the foxtrot. This comes on very loud, not in line with the previous two tracks. It suddenly quietens to the straight foxtrot rhythm. And the inspiration here, as in the previous two movements, is in the orchestration, which is interesting. The themes are all pretty banal, probably purposely so. This is by far the longest movement of the suite at 3 minutes and 55 seconds. And this is where the Hawaiian guitar comes in, listening at 1 minute and 20 <laughs> seconds. I really enjoyed that moment. It's such an odd sound to hear. There's a glissandoing trombone, you know, that, that comedy mm. uh, turn. You know, you get to get some <laughs> of that. Um, chiming percussion in three minutes, a fun piece. All right, tracks four through seven. This is the suite from The Age of Gold, which was a ballet. Written in 1930, revised 1935. Um, this is about the adventure, <laughs> the ballet. The story of the ballet is about the adventures of a Soviet soccer team visiting the decadent West. <laughs> decadent. Shostakovich described the action as the Western European dances breathe the spirit of depraved eroticism, wow. which is characteristic of contemporary bourgeois culture. If they could only see uh, it now. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but I tried to imbue the Soviet dances with the wholesome elements of sport and physical culture yeah i think the nazis did that too <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's really it's really funny depravity as we americans know well makes for more interesting music <laughs> which is the case here sometimes <laughs> sometimes only uh, well i don't think there's interesting wholesome music it would be too predictable really <laughs> all right the introduction um it's all wins at the beginning <laughs> Adventurous writing, but appealing. The orchestra handles this well. The recorded sound is transparent, so all the voices are easily followable. There's often counterpoint happening for brief periods. And there's a straightforward 3-4 rhythm at about 1 minutes and 45 seconds. A lot of quick changes of rhythmic profile. Uh, some vulgar sliding trombone at 3 minutes. That has to be <laughs> the Western people there. Decadent, vulgar. Can I, can I just say... Um, as speaking for the entire West, I, I'd just like to say, guilty as charged. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me see. This Okay, this is mostly a popular idiom. At uh, 3 minutes and 45 seconds, we're in an umpapa rhythm, which has always seemed sort of vulgar to me. Um, dynamics <laughs> on this recording are pretty huge when it gets loud. Yeah, the umpapa rhythm kind of sounds decadent to me. It just kind of sounds like yeah. too worn, you know. Like there's nothing new to do, so we're just gonna do umpa pa, you know. Second movement, adagio, quiet strings at the beginning, 
with the high wind instrument taking the lead on the melody. It's nicely shaped, as is the yearning of the accompanying strings. The oboe carries the melody for some time and has some expressive tones in his overall sound. A violin takes over and makes the melody more lyrical. The accompaniment warms up at 3 minutes and 40 seconds when the string section joins in. At 5 minutes and 20 seconds, we get a forte, and uh, boy does it register, especially in the bass end, where the timpani burst out of the speaker. The trumpet is played a bit outside the key area as the strings build to a climax at around 6 minutes and 30 seconds, and again at 6 minutes and 50 seconds. There's a rather plaintive flute solo toward the end, a nice movement, could be a standalone piece. Third movement, polka, as an allegretto. This is real early 20th century stuff. It's a square polka rhythm with xylophone playing an angular solo. The rhythm and thematic lines all sound mechanical. It's a gentle poke at popular music of the era. Um, Joseph Kovach obviously liked music like this, but his sense of fun prevails here as he sets the line of rhythm in comic fashion. The Singapore Symphony characterized well here. The humor and occasional harshness come across. We hear a fragment of a popular tune at the end. Fourth movement, dance, allegro. The opening of this sounds a bit like the return to the Shrovetide Fair uh, in the fourth tableau of uh, Stravinsky's Petrushka. Or is that the third tableau? It's the fourth tableau. Okay. Uh, that changes, though, as uh, a lot of uh, quick changes of rhythm and clever changes of timbre and harmony bring us to unpredictable places, as though we're on a wild ride. Um, the Singapore Symphony and Linton are in good form here and throughout this piece. Fun stuff. I'm getting a sense that um, in Lytton, Andrew Lytton is really the driving force here, because it's popular music that he understands. I feel like the Singapore, they're, they're kind of playing it sort of straight, but there, there are kind of um, elements in their playing that are kind of making it Mm. breathe better and I really feel like that's Lytton's conducting that's really kind of pushing yeah you'd have to understand that. what was going on at the in this time yeah. period and right it, it it has to be a balance of sort of hokiness that's inherent yeah. in the material but also the kind of fun spirit and I feel the fun spirit comes out and that must be at yeah. his you know direction yeah. and pulling that out of the the phrasing and tempos yeah right yeah, exactly. I feel the same way. Okay, uh, 8 through 12, tracks 8 through 12 is the suite from The Limpid Stream, 1935, and this was arranged as a suite in 1945. This was a ballet uh, that takes place in the world of agriculture, Ooh. as all great ballets should. I guess. <laughs> Dancing over the cow <laughs> patties, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there was a, it wasn't about agriculture, but there was a Co an Aaron Copeland ballet. Um, well, there's the, his rodeo, mm. um, which I can, well, that's not really an agriculture, but it's kind of the, uh, the West. Yeah. Anyway, but that's a bit of American culture there. Anyway, the, the world of agriculture, the score has more simple tunefulness than the age of gold does because that one had to portray the decadent West. Um, the scenario avoids conflict in its portrayal of a group of entertainers visiting an idyllic collective farm, Ooh. which is the limpid stream of the title. Sounds like a okay. hippie commune in the 60s or something. This reminds me of a lot of these old movies I've seen that kind of <laughs> idyllic life on uh, in the in the, uh, the in nature somewhere, and you know somebody starts murdering everybody <laughs> eventually. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, that doesn't happen in the ballet. It's all idyllic. No. Anyway, 
the first movement is a waltz. It's got an umpapa rhythm, waltzing strings. It's generic and schmaltzy. That's intentional. There's some nice chord changes. I like the clarinet that takes over the melody at about mm-hmm. 20 seconds in. Uh, this is pretty standard light music, nicely orchestrated and arranged. Second movement, Russian popular dance. It's light and appealing. Um, the Singapore Symphony, by the way, uh, seems very delighted by this music. And uh, it's all clean, smooth, enthusiastically played. Mm-hmm. Uh, the melodic material is played without subtlety, not much flexibility in the lines. But in music like this, there's not much need for it, so they sort of get away with it. And again, Lytton draws out from them the um, sort of elements that really put this music across. It, cross, it comes across well as what it is. Third movement is a gallop, big trumpet call at the beginning, followed by rushing string theme. This is played moderately with some excitement, but without much fire. It didn't give me chills, but it's fine. It's got a big ending. Fourth movement, adagio. A rather pleading string opening, followed by a romantic cello theme. This is by far the longest movement of this uh, suite at 7 minutes and 7 seconds. The other movements are all less, more than half as short. The cello is subtly accompanied by distant mm. harp chords, which have a bit of a percussive thump to them, which I really enjoyed. There's a big Hollywood cadence at 3 minutes and 25 seconds. The cello continues afterwards with a new heartfelt melody, this time accompanied by glissandi on the harp. It settles down to a quieter melody with gentle harp accompaniment. And then finally, the um, fifth movement is uh, pizzicato. It's got an appealing melody, all played pizzicato, very catchy and yeah. fun and very short as well. It's got a little nutcracker sweet quality to it. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. The tracks 13 through 20 are the Suite for Variety Orchestra. This was written in the 1950s. We don't know which year. Shostakovich compiled the suite from three film scores, a ballet movement, and three piano pieces. Wow. <laughs> yeah, a lot of... Uh, you, you want your music to live, you know? You want to get, get lost. Yeah, I wrote this for a silent movie. Now, now it's part of my... <laughs> My like orchestra suite. Variety anyway. suite. <laughs> yeah, it's a good name for it, I guess. It is, yeah, yeah. It's a variety of you know, places it came from. All right, the first movement is a march, Giocoso, alla marcia. This is a rather bombastic march opening. Uh, standard stuff, well arranged, great sound on this recording right up front. Second movement, dance number one. Rushing, almost Russian-sounding dance, very fast. Um, it's hard to say anything about any of these movements. They're very straightforward <laughs> and light. Uh, the orchestration is nice, though, seeking to draw the ear without being showy. Big, energetic ending. Third movement, dance number two, Allegretto, Allegretto, sorry, Scherzando, which is joking. This grabbed my ear right away with the cheerful wind theme opening the piece. The rhythm is mechanical sounding in a music box way. Uh, there's a quick change of tex- texture and rhythm at the two-minute mark. The fourth movement is a little polka, allegretto. Sounds like a xylophone again, playing the thematic material here. We need more xylophone in music. Mm. I really feel like that's an instrument from the 1920s. Anyway, it gets passed around to various... The theme, not the xylophone, the theme gets (laughs) passed around to various sections of the orchestra with big booming accents from the percussion. Appealing. Fifth movement, lyric waltz. 
heavy sounding waltz rhythm at the opening which lightens into something more elegant there's an accordion solo in this one which is very charming i liked that little surprise sixth movement waltz one sostenuto light and elegant with the waltz rhythm played by a distant piano uh melody by alternating winds and strings and a glimmering ending all right now here comes the uh the I guess highlights seventh movement waltz two allegretto poco moderato. This is a very famous movement because it was the title music to Stanley Kubrick's final film Eyes Wide Shut. Mm. You heard this at the beginning of the movie, and uh, if you remember that, you'll recognize it right away. <laughs> uh, and it was also used in the film The First Echelon in 1956. Remember that one? I don't either. No, <laughs> unless you're a big film buff. I don't know. And here it has been slightly rewritten and dramatically reorchestrated from the Jazz Suite Waltz that is the first track on this album. So the Jazz Suite actually is the same mm. basic piece, um, but it's different here. It's it's more recognizable as the um, uh, Eyes Wide Shut opening theme. It didn't get quite the notoriety that like uh, Strauss's also, Sprach Zarathustra did at the beginning of 2001, <laughs> which is now known as the 2001 Space Odyssey theme. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, poor Strauss. Anyway, the funny thing about that, that's what I'm talking about for listeners who don't listen to classical music so much is that theme that goes, dun, 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 dun. Yeah. The timpani, yeah. <laughs> it's two minutes long and it's from a tone poem that's a half an hour long and nobody yeah. knows the next 28 minutes <laughs> of the work. But they should because it's they really should, great. Yeah. It's powerful. It's a good one. Yeah, it's a great work. Anyway, in spite of the... Um, this doesn't really stand out from the rest of the suite except that it's familiar, really, just because of, for those of us who have seen that movie. It's got that umpapa rhythm. Uh, I guess it's got a catchy melodic twist at the end of the melodic phrases that leads to the tonic resolution. I think that's what Kubrick liked mm. about it, too. It's certainly what I liked about it. Uh, it's pretty straightforward otherwise. And the finale begins with a big flourish, then swirling carnival ground music. The middle section is more like a march. The xylophone returns at 45 seconds, and there's a big finish. Then, track 21, we get a little bonus a piece called Tahiti Trot from 1927. <laughs> yeah. um, you might recognize this piece. It's uh, T for Two, the very famous um, um, tune um, mm. written by Vincent Humans for the um, American musical comedy No No Nanette, which was staged mm. in 1925. The reason why this piece is called Tahiti Trot here is uh, the popular yeah. songwriter Boris Fomin introduced it into a show, like a variety show in, on, in the theater, under the title Tahiti Trot. Um, one evening, the conductor Nikolai Malko bet Shostakovich he couldn't write out a full orchestral score of it in an hour, and Shostakovich did it in less than 45 minutes. <laughs> and Amazing. it became a popular encore number that was inserted into the Age of Gold as an entracte. So why Tahiti? In the Russian version of the song, the lovers... In that the lyrics talk about are dreaming of escape from their world of telephones, newspapers, and trams into a paradise of sunshine, palm trees, and bananas. <laughs> Where else but Tahiti? Of course. Anyway, in this particular orchestration, a brass fanfare starts the piece. This is one of those tunes with an introductory verse, which we hear here. Um, I like those. I really miss those. A, a lot of times they'll mm. cut them out, but I rather... 
I think it's kind of charming. Yeah. Um, the main material that we all know dun, 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 begins at uh, 41 seconds. Can I just say, well, I think we, we're, we're called adult music. I'm guessing we have um, listeners that are almost all over 30 years old, probably, probably <laughs> over 50, really. <laughs> and I would hope they all know this song. If you don't know T for Two, go to your streaming service and listen to it now. It's one of the most famous songs yeah. like ever written, you know. So it's a great to- 20th century tune. It's from the American um, songbook. Uh, and, uh, yeah, the songbook. Yeah, it's one of those. And then listen to what Art Tatum did with it, and then you'll yes. realize why jazz is great too. Yeah, yeah. Art Tatum's made this a really one of his most popular, you know, tunes. Mm. Okay. Uh, the main material begins at 41 seconds, if you want to hear that. It's a charming orchestration played by Glockenspiel with harp accompaniment. How great is that? Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> okay. And Glockenspiel and harp too. accompaniment. Yeah. That yeah. Then we hear the xylophone take the melody. This is the Glockenspiel handing off to the xylophone mm-hmm. with a clarinet accompaniment. Then come the strings. That's a little less interesting. Muted brass, cellos, and the theme keeps getting passed around to different combinations of instruments. It's incredible that Shostakovich orchestrated this so quickly because it's so odd. Yeah, Yeah, some of the combinations are really clever. Um, He must have been really having fun. Hey, I wonder what this will sound like. Yeah. (laughs) All right, this is a charming album. Um, The Singapore Symphony acquits itself well without really offering any subtlety of phrasing, but uh, there really isn't much room for that in these works. Mm. Um, You just have to like the popular music of the early 20th century for this to appeal. Um, I like it enough. Um, but I don't see myself returning to this very often. Um, but I probably will. It's an appealing release for those interested in this era. Yeah, I thought it just a fun uh, insight yeah. uh, with because Shostakovich. I, I like a lot of his. He works. can be heavy. Some yeah, yeah. Sometimes, like especially in the all string works that he has, I get sort of bogged down in you know his sense of harmony, which is interesting, but it's very dense sometimes. And, you know, sometimes I find it just like weighs me down and I get tired out um, from what he's doing, although I do like him as a composer. So it was just kind of fun to take his concept and put it on this lighter material and then see what he would do with it. And it gave me some insight into his, you know, sort of concept as a composer uh, working with, you know, these... uh, less heavy and more familiar kind of melodies and ideas. And I just found it uh, yeah, enjoyable. Uh, I, I thought the orchestral performance is good. It could have been more me- too mechanical in some hands, but I felt that Lytton pulled out the fun and sort of exuberance right. uh, in the material, kept the tempos uh, going where they needed to, and the phrasing was they were nice. lively. Because yeah. the phrasing is important, especially on melodies that are familiar to people. And uh, overall, I thought it was just uh, enjoyable and it was nice to see because, you know, a lot of Russian composers, they can they can leave a lasting impression of uh, sort of heavy dreariness <laughs> and Shostakovich can do that, too. It's really like, uh, I don't know, enlightening to see this sort of lighter side that he had, a you know, a fun uh, sort of uh, side to his personality, too. And he enjoyed this kind of music. And I, I just found it like a nice little diversion. 
You don't really think of Russian composers as being fun, especially no. those in the uh, <laughs> Soviet Union. Although yeah. we we found uh, Nikolai Kapustin, he does all that yeah. jazzy. Oh yeah, those are great. So he yeah. he was really fun. Those are great. Those yeah, are great. but he's he's really kind of out of the ordinary, I think. Mm -hmm. Anyway, onwards. Um, you might have noticed my um, my strategy here is to move closer to the trumpet, and here we are. Yes. We have arrived at a trumpet. Um, trumpet this album time. is called. Yeah, concertos for trumpet and piano and orchestra. <laughs> That's yes. in the title. Anyway, the artist Selina Ott on the trumpet, Maria Radutu, piano, the ORF Vienna Radio Symphony Orchestra conducted by Dirk Kaftan, and this is on the Orfeo label. And we start with Shostakovich. Um, a bigger piece. This was uh, still pretty light, but not light like the previous recording. Mm. This is his Piano Concerto Number no. 1 in C minor for Piano, Trumpet, and Strings, Opus 35. All right, this is really a piano uh, concerto with some obligato trumpet in it. Yeah, he felt in. like he needed to uh, highlight the fact that the trumpet was there because I guess it gets a solo part for a bit. I think the but trumpet does basically. Yeah, trumpet does yeah. a lot more counting than playing in this piece. <laughs> right, <laughs> but just the fact that he's he gets to step out a bit, I guess. It's really a piano concerto. Um, <laughs> I was, Five, I was like that. Two, piano three, four. Ba, 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 ba. <laughs> you're out. <laughs> yeah. Piano concerto for piano and trumpet. You know, it's kind of reminds me of, in, in extreme music, my novel, like Alberto Monacci's piece, piano concerto for solo cello. You know? Yeah. It's <laughs> not even possible. <laughs> right. The, the entire piano concerto, giant piano concerto, condensed into like a four-stringed instrument. I thought, just thought that was funny somehow. All right. Anyway, first movement, Allegretto. The piano and the trumpet with the mute begin the piece. It's a very 20th century sound, very bony sounding, I thought. Mm. Uh, not this full, rom lush, romantic sound. After that, we get a meandering piano melody with a prominent walking bass line in the double bass, which is a solo double bass. The main theme comes up after this brief introduction in the piano. It's busy and rather virtuosic and very appealing. Uh, energetic, too. The movement is given good momentum by the pianist Maria Radutu and the orchestra. There are a lot of quick changes of character in this movement uh, that are well navigated, and that's going to happen in all three works, or I guess three of the four works that are we hear on this album. Um, I want to say something about that. Um, these these are early 20th century pieces, and uh, the whole idea of like changing from rhythm to rhythm like really quickly, like in a schizophrenic way comes from the movies. Um, mm. uh, the, the technique um, of movie editing was a new thing. Um, you, you would, you would splice the film. If you wanted to have a character, he's in New York and then in the next scene, he's in Paris and you just splice the film and there he is. And suddenly there's a change that we, we do, we just accept this today because we just grew up with movies and uh, there were a lot of movies before we were born. But, in the early 20th century, movies were a new thing, and this whole idea of editing was completely new to people. They right. had to adjust to it. And I have so to say, composers picked that up also and put it in their music. They didn't um, modulate yeah. to different keys; they just went there. It's and, gotten much worse, though. Um, <laughs> if you watch, I love to watch these old movies. Once in a while, I'll yeah. get on a kick. Like I'll just be like, "Okay, I'm going to watch Robert Mitchum movies." Right? Oh, I like those. And yeah, I love watching old movies and. You'll get an occasional movie or sort of a TV 
usually only for cable, one of these special things that allow the actors the time to sort of develop their role, you know, right. with space, facial expressions and pauses. But right. as we've progressed and the way that the editing is done now, uh, some movies are just like, you know, they one after the other edits cutting out, you know, all of yeah. the sort of space in them. And I get tired out. Um, yeah. Uh, but it's kind of interesting that even the sort of uh, relaxed editing in the early cinematic experience would, you know, influence the way that music would also be sort of phrased and composed too. Right. And we, and if you want to know what that sounds like, just listen to this album because mm. all three works do this. Um, the, a lot of these 20th century, just quick changes of character. Um, all well navigated here, by the way. Uh, we finally hear the unmuted trumpet at 2 minutes and 30 seconds, uh, playing almost a hunting call. It plays like all these sort of fanfares. Mm. Um, Selena Ott only reappears occasionally for punctuation at the end of phrases, while the piano has a perpetuum mobile type of unstoppable line. There's the early 20th century sense of art music patterns with uh, virtuosity, combined with popular-sounding rhythms and themes. I really liked... Um, pianist Maria Rodutu's pl piano playing in this movement and she's recorded exceptionally well it's a very she's very clear um, meanwhile Selena Ott's trumpet lines ring out brightly and solidly but she does, as Russ mentioned she doesn't have all that much to do second movement Lento is ghostly lightly taken string theme starts us off and the theme itself is appealing but a bit forlorn the piano comes in with a light, romantic-era sounding theme, and the strings eventually drop out and let her play solo. At the three-minute mark, the piano suddenly perks up and plays a quick-moving line in the upper end of the piano, which eventually develops into a dramatic part spanning in the keyboard. A dramatic part that spans the keyboard. Um, the pianist is without accompaniment again. At four minutes and 30 seconds, the strings reintroduce the theme, this time much more lightly. It's very touching. It's a nice moment. The trumpet comes in at around five minutes for a muted melody, meaning it's got the mute in it. Uh, it doesn't really sound much like a trumpet here, actually. I was kind of wondering if it was like a woodwind instrument, just the, the sound it gets. And the piano and trumpet trade off material. The piano, once again, starts playing slow material solo. He gets a, a lot of solo. They're not cadenzas either. They're really just kind of these... Mm parts where the orchestra drops out then the orchestra comes in with thematic material to accompany it with pizzicati violins marking the second and third beats to clarify the three four time this movement ends quietly the third movement is very brief um it's called it's labeled moderato there's a low bass note on the piano and a rather mechanical figure on the piano rides down the keyboard the strings come in playing a forbidding theme with pulsing bass. This movement is just over a minute long and goes into the Allegro con brio movement, the fourth movement. A rather aggressive piano theme opens this. By the way, I want to say something else about mechanical rhythms. This is another early 20th century um, idea. Now, me mechanical clocks, this sort of thing, were really popular in Europe in the 19th century. If you remember... In the early 20th century, this whole idea of the mechanization of society was kind of coming into uh, uh, thought people's thought. If you think of uh, Charlie Chaplin's movie Modern Times, mm -hmm. he kind of um, 
sort of uh, criticizes that in that or satires it really in that movie. Well, a lot of uh, music does that too, and they kind of um, put it in there as a kind of like sometimes to mean like the lifelessness of modern society, or sometimes just to have an exciting sort of mechanical mm-hmm. rhythm that doesn't breathe. Okay, so they rather like that. They thought of it as a 20th century um, sound. Right. Okay. Um, so the the fourth movement, a rather aggressive piano theme opens this. Then there's an urgent string rhythm, and the piano starts a frenetic high-speed solo. The trumpet reappears with a fanfare. We have sudden quick-changing rhythmic profiles. Think the movies again here, as in the first movement, with the trumpet appearing every now and then to accent points in the thematic material with fanfares. Um, this speeds up considerably with both the piano and trumpet sounding like they're riding a wild horse. At 2 minutes and 25 seconds, the piano starts a new theme solo, which the orchestra are quick to join in. Then a sudden slowing and a new theme by the orchestra. The trumpet gets some time in the spotlight here, playing a rather shady melody, which the pianist accentuates by crashing down on the keys at one point. <laughs> it's pretty interesting. Eventually, the piano resumes its frenetic theme, uh, when the trumpet ends its section. And piano gets another solo section. This would be the cadenza, I guess, here. Um, an urgent pace is set for the approach to the final cadence with a few trumpet calls included. This is a highly caffeinated movement. <laughs> an inventive, appealing piece, some fantastic playing, especially by the pianist. Even more enjoyable because the recording is so good. This is probably the best recording um, of the classical works that we've heard tonight. All right. The uh, second piece on this is by a composer whose um, star is in the ascendant, Mieczysław Weinberg. He was a Jewish composer from Poland who lived in the USSR, and his music after he died was just forgotten for the longest time. But in 2010, it started to be revived, and there was a really famous recording, I believe, in 2020 um, of two of his symphonies that really put him back on the uh, the uh, sort of the... Um, programs again and now there's a lot of his music is now being recorded and released we'll probably do something more of his music later this year um i know i know there are string quartets coming out now i'll have to give them a listen anyway this is called uh, trumpet concerto in b flat major opus 94 so this one features the trumpet in fact there's no piano in this or is there i don't remember anyway um the first movement is called etudes Etudes starts out with some pretty impressive arpeggiated grace notes up to the principal note ripped out of the trumpet. Bright sounds by Ott here, Selena Ott, the soloist. We're finally hearing her at length on this recording. The orchestral strings play a rather menacing set of chords, while the trumpet sticks to fanfares and popular tune melodies. The overall tone of this movement is menacing with a brief repeating melody that's reminiscent of the circus. So it's kind of a <laughs> an odd, ironic uh, juxtaposition of uh, kind of uh, qualities. There. The circus is kind of menacing, though, if you think about how many <laughs> horror movies take place in the circus. Scary clowns. Yeah. So menace and banality is what I got from this movement. Um, Weinberg is considered to be very original in his material, and I guess that's true. I mean, this is kind of an odd sort of juxtaposition hmm. of moods. At 3 minutes and 35 seconds, there's a new section where the music softens in contour. Though it's still aggressive, it builds up to something urgent and a bit strident in the fourth minute. At 4 minutes and 35 seconds, everything stops for a second, and the trumpet resumes quietly, playing longer tones with chordal 
harp accompaniment. It gets kind of spooky and lots of sudden jumps between moods that make this uh, sound schizophrenic, at, at f like movies again. At five minutes, we get back to the opening material and there's a cool ending on the trumpet. Second movement called Episodes. There's another urgent string theme, bigger boned and more early Hollywood film-like uh, theme starts the movement in the strings. The flute plays the gentler second theme in a minute and 30 seconds or so, and the trumpet comes in softly in the second minute, sounding a bit like a woodwind instrument here, uh, with a smooth, quiet attack. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a remarkable how Selena Ott can get that sound. This is the second time she's done it on I this like, recording. Um, I think the idea was um, using the mute of the trumpet was to pick up in the same sort of uh, timbre that the flute ah. has to get sort of this seamless transition before you realize the instrument has changed. Um, right. That's, that's, that's a kind nice, of what I got of it. It was a nice effect, yeah. Nice effect, yeah. I like that as well. That's at the, in the second minute. Listen for that. Okay. Um, it, the, the trumpet sound emerges fully as it goes on. Mm -hmm. The flute takes up a new melody as the trumpet finishes its initial material in the third minute. Then we hear the trumpet back with a mute at the end of the third minute. There are snare drum taps that seem to initiate changes in texture. Something fanfare-like comes next from the trumpet. Um, the trumpet plays a kind of signal call as the uh, crescendo reaches its peak. The music quietens by the sixth minute, and the flute and trumpet play in counterpoint. A dreamier atmosphere emerges in the eighth minute with the trumpet playing signal call motifs, and the flute comes in for an arabesque in the ninth minute to bring the movement to a close. The third uh, movement is called Fanfares, and this starts off immediately from the previous movement with a tolling bell. There's no pause between movements. The trumpet plays uh, what sounds to me like a military signal call, sort of a funeral theme, and suddenly it breaks out into something more athletic and active as we hear another bell sound. This woody percussion sound is the only accompaniment as the trumpet solos, and it's pretty cool. I liked uh, the way it interacted with the trumpet. Um, a nice, it, there's a nice m moment three minutes in. There are quiet upward grace notes reminiscent of the first movement's intro. And then we're off to longer tones on the trumpet as the orchestra, in the trumpet and orchestra. In the last minute, there's an interesting section with bitty figures from different percussion instruments. The piece ends on a sudden chord after a quiet descent mm -hmm. on muted trumpet. So this piece comes across as serious but ironic and a bit forbidding. It's not a warm piece, um, but it's got something to say. Uh, Selena Ott really shines in this piece with her smooth tone that can brighten quickly. Worth hearing. The last work on this album is uh, by André Jolivet, a composer that I really like. Uh, he's, he's French, and he's from the uh, the war years to the post-war years. Um, this is his concertino for trumpet, string orchestra, and piano, so they're kind of reversed. I guess the trumpet's the more <laughs> important instrument here. And the piano's accompanying this time. Nice programming, by the way, after mm. the Shostakovich uh, piano-featured uh, piano concerto, which has trumpet in it. This piece was written in 1948. First movement, Allegro. These are all pretty short movements, about four minutes each. Well, actually, the first movement's about five minutes, and then the others are shorter. This has a percussive, chaotic opening with the solo trumpet, dispelling that chaos with a melody. This piece has more quick-changing moods, again, like film editing, 
When the trumpet plays, um, Selena Ott slows down the material with longer-breathed tones and melodies. The orchestra, on the other hand, is restless. At a minute and 20 seconds, a rather chirpy melody over a mechanical groove begins. Um, the piano in this is mostly relegated to orchestral helping the orchestra out, but she's got some cool parts to play. Oh, by the way, if you're ever getting a quiz, somebody says, when was this piece written? And someone plays it, and it's got a mechanical, machine-like rhythm. Guess early 20th century. <laughs> okay, because that's when that was in vogue. Um, uh, I like the syncopated accompanying chords that occasionally pop up in the piano. At uh, 3 minutes and 12 seconds, there's a complete stop, then some tentative orchestral sounds, which lead into another rapidly moving rhythm. The trumpet at this point has a mute, which is removed by 4 minutes and 3 seconds. Some quick repeated note work comes from the trumpet next. Very impressive. And uh, there's a sudden end. Second movement is very brief, 2.5 minutes. It starts with a slow, ponderous theme in the low strings. The trumpet quietly solos over that. The orchestral... The orchestra produces ghostly floating string themes that sound modal, while the muted trumpet plays very quietly over them by the end. The piano is finally heard at the end, building up the energy for the third movement, which connects to the next movement, the allegro. The piano starts off with an easily memorable rhythmic theme that sets the rhythmic and melodic approach for this movement. Uh, the trumpet is still muted as it solos over this. At the beginning, it's merely commenting on the piano line. Then the strings start a rushing rhythm at a minute and 10 seconds, and the trumpet picks that up and brings it to a resolve. The piano comes back, and the trumpet plays the piano's theme along with it. We go back and forth between rushing strings and the piano's rhythm. This brief movement is brought to a rather surprising climax. It sounds like it could go on. And then there's um, an 11th track, uh, Rachmaninoff, from his uh, songs Opus 4, arranged for trumpet and piano. Song number four from that set, Do Not Sing My Beauty. This is a quiet, this is completely different in character than everything we've <laughs> yeah. heard on this album. It's a quiet romantic accompaniment by the piano. The trumpet plays the lovely melody to arpeggiated piano chords. The melody is touching, and we hear Selena Ott's lovely ability with phrasing in her shaping of the melody with tone and dynamics. This is why they put this on here, because they wanted. Yeah. To you to see that she can, oh I can also play this beautiful romantic legato style, um, which the other works on this album don't require. The piano sensitively accompanies, but this is really Ott's chance to show the beauty of her legato line. It ends mysteriously in the piano as it began. Um, of the th of the three albums I talked about, the classical albums, this is my favorite one of the three. Mm. It's excellently performed and recorded, enjoyable throughout. Three works well worth hearing, though I'd advise hearing them at a different sitting. <laughs> uh, for me, classical trumpet can be... Uh, three works of classical trumpet solo could be way too much, but they're all great works. Yeah, I like... I'm always, you know, as a trumpet player, I'm always interested to hear a new classical trumpet recording because, you know, they don't come out as often as violin works or other things. And, <laughs> Which uh, come out every day. Yeah. <laughs> so these were good to hear. Um I like Joe LeVay. Uh, I, I would say that I prefer his uh, Concerto for Trumpet Number no. 2. It's one of my more f uh, favorite pieces rather than this uh, work. Uh, I just think it has a lot more interesting uh, 
melodic kind of themes. In oh boy, it. I'm embarrassed to say I don't know that one. Oh, you do know it because I uh, we listened to that. It was oh. one of the things we er- we shared early. I had a kind of oh, obscure... I've heard it. I got to go back. Yeah, yeah right. check that. I've, one out. I've got that CD somewhere. I got to like look uh, at the. Uh, yeah, as you say, he's yeah, an interesting collection. composer, um, and he did a few things for trumpet, and uh, I like that one a lot. He's uh, I like I, his music quite a lot yeah. actually I can recommend quite a bit of it there's right. a great piece uh, for flute and piano called uh, Chantalinos which was also or- arranged for flute and string quartet right. which I recommend people here I really like it and uh, the Weinberg is kind of interesting it's going to take a few more listens for me to figure out uh, everything that's going on it's kind of dense I need to unpack yeah. it a little bit more uh, with repeated listenings. I like Ott's playing. Uh, what I feel her strength as a trumpet player in is uh, she has an incredible sense of control. Hmm. Uh, she can play softly and she can play uh, these sort of uh, extended lines uh, with th- this sort of confidence at a low volume and uh, the phrases come out beautifully. I I wanted a little bit more sort of a, I don't know, dynamic character on some of the more expressive lines. Uh, It just might not be in her personality. Uh, But I think, you know, in these works, as you say, the the Rachmaninoff is included as a contrast uh, with this more legato, beautiful style. And I feel that, you know, that may actually be her strength rather than these sort of angular percussive things. I would love to hear her sound and technique on sort of the uh, cornet repertoire of uh, virtuosic solos that all trumpet players stole, so, you know, uh, practice for solo repertoire uh, coming up uh, rather than this sort of 20th century material. So I'm going to keep her name in mind uh, to hear some more lyrical type of things that I think may bring out her personality more than these type of works that kind of favor a more forceful uh, kind of percussive style of trumpeting because I think uh, her strengths may be in tone and phrasing uh, and they may shine on other works although not a bad performance here and I was uh, happy to hear the Weinberg uh, here it reminded me of Joe LeVay yeah. and I want to go back and check out uh, that other work that I like a lot yeah I have to listen to that again too yeah it's one of my favorite ones of the modern uh, you know the, <laughs> the trumpet repertoire uh, there's not as much there as there is for other instruments. So when you get a good piece, uh, you want to kind of make sure that other people know about it so that it gets played. I, actually, I think Wynton Marsalis even recorded the uh, uh, Joe Levin number two. I did think he, really? he did. I, I believe he did. Wow. Yeah. Um, although I, I only re- know him when he does classical music. He usually does like Handel or something like that. He just like yeah. broke. I always liked his classical playing better than his jazz, but that's just me. <laughs> so. All right. Speaking of which, it's it's jazz time, isn't it? Yeah, it's jazz time. And uh, we're going to just we take go. that trumpet theme and uh, run with it uh, to the end. We really end. are. This is quite a variety of uh, yeah. recordings this week. Yeah. And, well, I have to say, um, I'm pretty happy with the jazz picks in um, a certain sense of character. And what I mean by that is uh, I've found that in recent years, there's sort of a a trend of trumpet players that have uh, sought, trumpet players have sought out this sort of dark kind of uh, tone that sort of goes against what 
you know, the, the tradition of trumpet playing. And mm -hmm. they've sought this out, I'm sure, you know, in their concept, but also in the equipment that they use. So you'll yeah. see a lot of trumpet players using these very expensive customized trumpets that have a, the mouthpiece is, uh, you know, built into the trumpet. It's a one piece sort of instrument with a very thick walled mouthpiece. Uh, and it produces this great thick uh, tone that doesn't get those overtones and brightness of a trumpet of years gone by. And uh, I, I think it's gone too far uh, in some senses. I know senses. what you mean. And a lot of these trumpet players, they, they all sound the same. And then, you know, a lot of them will also play flugelhorn and they sound exactly the same on both instruments. And yeah. to me, it's gone a, you know, a bit too much in this quest for the quest for darkness, so to speak. It's not just that. It's kind of like they wanted to get away from the bright sound because like, oh, right. I want to do something different. So he does the, somebody does the dark sound mm -hmm. and somebody catches on to that and they want to be different too. And pretty soon everybody's the same doing yeah. the dark sound, you know, and you're not hearing even the enjoyable bright sound anymore. The dark right. sound really isn't as enjoyable. And there's a lot of appeal to that bright sound. Uh, yeah. One player that always just comes to mind is Randy Brecker. He has this yeah. sound. Oh, man. It, I mean, it can it be lights up the sky. Yeah, it can be warm <laughs> and fluffy, but when he lights it up, it's a yeah. laser that just cuts through. You know, yeah. it rips the curtains off from the window, and I miss that. And or, or I and I also miss the player who has that sort of uh, kind of variety of tones. So I was happy with my picks this week that I've got some players with some kind of tonal spectrum. Uh, oh, in we here. certainly do, especially and, uh, yeah. in one of them that we're going to yeah, talk about we're gonna soon. Get to, which is what it's going to be uh, really <laughs> on my list. Um, but anyway, we're going to start out with a player that I like a lot because he sort of captures a lot of the old style. I, I think he really embodies one player in particular, uh, but he also brings a lot of modern qualities uh, to the sound that may uh, take a little bit uh deeper listening, but I think I caught them uh, in my first few listens here. And that, uh, we're speaking of our first album by uh, the trumpeter Jason Palmer and his uh, new release. This came out last month in May, Konalma on the uh, Steeplechase label, uh, came out May 13th. Now, uh, Jason Palmer is uh, currently assistant professor at Berkeley College of Music. Uh, he also has a, a visiting assistant professorship at uh, Harvard University. He's about, uh, he's in his early 40s uh, right now. Uh, on his way up, he won a few uh, trumpet competition awards, and he's been on Steeplechase since 2010, and this is his 10th uh, album on the label. Now, I want to ask you, before you go into these uh, songs, who's that on the cover with him? Is that his daughter? Uh, could be. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, it just kind of he's he's, uh, on, he's with this younger, yeah, girl a young on girl the, on, on the there. cover. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, so he has this career going well on Steeplechase. Uh, he's uh, I think he's recorded on over like forty albums as a sideman with greats uh, Roy Haynes, Herbie Hancock, uh, Jimmy Smith, the organist, uh, Whitten Marsalis and the Lincoln Center Jazz Ensemble, uh, Ravi Coltrane, John Coltrane's son. Uh, Lee Konitz, Phil Woods, Roy Hargrove, and others. Uh, so he's built up his career. He's also uh, part of the uh, jazz academic world now as well. 
on this release, uh, he's on trumpet, uh, Leo Genovese on piano and Fender Rhodes, uh, and uh, Joe Martin on bass, and on drums, Kendrick Scott, who we heard last week as well with uh, Joey Alexander, oh. uh, the young, uh, how should we now say? Now composer, yeah. yeah virtuosic <laughs> uh, player and uh, composer as well. Yeah. And uh, so this album uh, has a lot of interesting things. We're going to get some uh, standards and uh, some covers of uh, other jazz composers' originals and as well as some uh, Palmer originals here. Uh, there's some things hidden in the works uh, that I'll pull out as we go along. Uh, we're going to be start out with uh, a standard from, uh, although a not as much performed standard, but from one of the great composers, Jimmy Van Heusen, uh, Moonlight Becomes You. Uh, hmm. We don't hear this one so often uh, anymore. Uh, a nice title. A great melody, yeah. Uh, hmm. This one begins with a drum intro. Uh, Palmer leads into the melody. Now, pay attention, folks. This is <laughs> usually a 4-4 four, four kind of ballad. Uh, get your fingers out to count. Uh, an unusual time signature here. It's in 5-8 time. Oh, God. Yeah, so think of 6-8, <laughs> a little waltz, uh, but it's missing the beat on the second bar. That's quite a change yeah. <laughs> for this. I knew something was odd, but I had to figure it out, so I started from kinda, the beginning It kind of sounds again. like it has a limp, you know, yeah. it's not really... Yeah, it's you know. missing a toe or something. <laughs> but <laughs> um, Scott marks, marks out the subdivisions clearly in his symbols. It makes it easier for you to figure it out. Uh, Palmer mixes clear articulation, uh, sometimes some nice half-valve smears into notes uh, that makes an interesting combination on the melody. What I like here is he's got that traditional uh, earlier era jazz trumpet sound with some brightness to it. And in his sound, there's a little burr of roughness that happens throughout this album. So inside that clear tone, you'll hear a little roughness that comes out more or less in different sections. Um he starts his solo, including some more staccato phrases, working into some lyrical lines. Uh, and after tumbling phrases, his phrasing style is really quite unique. Um, he gets up high to light it up for a bit. Uh, then uh, we get a solo from Genovese, who builds up tension, lots of rapid and short phrases. But it, then he moves on to more connective ideas with his uh soloing phrases as he moves on through and Palmer returns with the melody and gets some more playful interval improvisations in there uh, and then a, a piano vamp and final kind of shimmering run uh, close it out uh, so uh, an old song done uh, with an interesting new meter uh, I thought that was kind of a cool way to start it out I thought the pianist here, when he had his, uh, there's a moment that he sounds kind of like the uh, piano in Stravinsky's Petrushka with all these mm. kind of like just flurries of notes. Yeah. Going. Uh, I thought it was a pretty interesting touch. Gets a little bit uh, creative in that exposition oh, yeah. there. That was interesting. Uh, track two is Old Folks. Uh, it's a, a kind of a standard tune by Willard Robinson. Uh, an interesting playful, playful introduction here. Some staccato trumpet. And romping piano chords, uh, you know, that kind of uh, percussive thing. Uh, they lead into the melody. It has kind of a light rumba beat before it switches to swing on the bridge and then back again. I like Palmer's light blowing on the melody. He makes it sing. 
Uh, he's a player who plays soft really well, and he likes to do it. And I like that contrast. Uh, he's not always blaring it out. Uh, they go through this twice, uh, keeping the melody fairly straight. Uh, Genovese then gets an animated piano solo with lots of anticipation uh, ideas in his rhythms. They kind of lead on to the next phrase. Uh, Palmer joins back for his own solo. It's got a lot of uh, double time runs and uh, he slows it up a bit on the swing section and then uh, plays the final section of the melody and they make a little romping coda, a little different section uh, as an outro to the end. Um, now, uh, track three, the title track, is uh, Con Alma. This is a Dizzy Gillespie composition. Uh, Con Alma, I guess in Spanish would mean soulfully or with soul. Con, with soul. Um, hmm. Genevieve switches to Rhodes here, and the chords pan left to right with this phasery effect. It's a bit disconcerting in headphones. <laughs> yeah, so I said it sounds like it's being played from a spaceship, so yeah. like in Close Encounters, you know, dun, dun, dun. Yeah. It's, it sounds like it's just this weird yeah. otherworldly sound. Yeah. Um, since I liked it better on speakers in, in the headphones, it gets you spinning a bit. Uh, now, this mm -hmm. is uh, the original like Pink, Dizzy Gillespie's Pink Floyd album. <laughs> yeah. 4-4, uh, and here we're going to get a 5-4 version. Yeah. So... <laughs> Um, yeah, get ready for something different here. Uh, now, five four can can be a lot of things. It could be an extra beat, or yeah. it could be like uh, an extra step in a waltz. It could be one right. two, you know, one dun, two dun, three, dun, one dun, two, dun, one two three, one two. Yeah. Here it seems to be yeah. more of an extra beat, especially if you know this yeah. melody. Uh, it, you know, if you know this dizzy tune. Um, but Apalma comes in soon on this with a. Uh, legato improvisations over the piano thing that's going on. Uh, Scott has a heavy cymbal Latin beat going, and uh, Martin works a pulsing bass line underneath. It moves into the melody of longer phrases. Uh, Palmer has overdubbed another trumpet part, it seems, uh, to double and sometimes harmonize his own part. Uh, Genovese takes a Rhodes solo Curiously, using only his right hand. <laughs> I don't know what happened. <laughs> I guess he just wanted to be free harmonically over the bass. Um, he just he, wanted that high sound, too, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Just, yeah. And he flits and flutters around speedily over the keyboard, over Martin's thumping bass patterns. Uh, Palmer comes in for his solo. He's keeping it very lyrical here, singing phrases. Uh, his relaxed phrases with little turns. Uh, then turn to some speedier runs and some higher phrases. Listen for the nice descending rhythmic patterns at the end. It's like da di di da di di da di di da di di da. A little kind of uh, hmm. rhythmic play. I really like that. Um, Martin gets a little bass expression time before the melody returns. Uh, the little overdub licks are back, and they give kind of a Spanish image of a bullfighter arriving over the final vamping chords. Uh, kind of a unique take on an old Dizzy Gillespie tune. Now we're going to get an original from Palmer called Miracles. Uh, this is a kind of wispy 8-beat feeling rhythm. It opens with piano chords and figures over a pulsing bass. Palmer plays a lyrical melody here with little ornaments, some nicely accented and shorter notes. There's a little in uh, interlude by piano before Palmer returns for the final section that has some nice rhythmic change-ups. That little burr in his sound I mentioned before really comes out on this number. At the end of the melody, it comes down very softly for Palmer's solo to begin, 
And I like how he can play very soft and um, focus rather on interesting rhythmic ideas rather than, you know, that typical trumpet bravura. Uh, it's a short solo, though, and gets passed off to Martin for a, a little bass solo and then back to the melody. Uh, Genovese gets to take it out with some gentle piano. It's a very pretty tune with a nice, easy atmosphere, and I liked it. Yeah, the piano sound is really gorgeous on this track. Yeah. Though. I really liked what yeah. he got. Yeah. Atmospheric. Yeah. Mm. Uh, that's a little swig of Knob Creek, the official beverage of the I'm thinking musician. i got to go get my glass over here. <laughs> I'm kind of trying to stay dry over here. Yeah. Uh, track five, we're going to go with a Duke Pearson tune, You Know I Care. I tell my wife this every day. Does she believe me? I don't know. Uh, the piano intro... <laughs> Just play this track for her. ...goes into a slow rendition <laughs> of the melody. Uh, the rhythm is kind of like a 12-8, so think 4-4, um, four, four, but divided into three for each beat, because you can tell the busy and clicky drumming by Scott uh, stands out in contrast to Alma's or um, Palmer's lyrical and slow uh, four-beat melody. Palmer keeps his solo lyrical and singing, he picks up on the triplet subdivisions a few times to give phrases with some extra rhythmic push. Martin gets a bass solo next with more triplet ideas included. And then Genovese gives another solo with unexpected phrasing of lines bubbling up and ending in chiming chords. Uh, his concept is always so surprising on this album. Uh, Palmer joins back in for the melody that repeats the final phrase several times into a long held chord uh, that he gets some final licks over. Uh, track six, another Palmer original, Black Beauty. Uh, we're back to Rhodes here, and we get some rubato uh, things under legato trumpet phrases uh, that make the intro with light drum textures and cymbals. Palmer adds uh, a little pitch shift with half valve things at the end of the phrase. At about a minute and 20 seconds, the trio starts a laid-back waltz tempo. Palmer comes back with some light improvised lines featuring triplets and varied articulation. He mixes up the rhythmic figures and works up to some longer high notes and later more rapid phrases. Uh, his solos are free from cliches and surprisingly unpredictable. Uh, that's what I liked about his style. Uh, Genovese gets a swirling Rhodes piano solo using both hands this time. Uh, more interesting. It's an interesting combination of short articulated notes and phrases panning left and right uh, held out chords with that uh, kind of phasing effect. It's a long solo and the track reaches almost 11 minutes. Wow. Hmm. Uh, Palmer joins back in for some more rhythmic play and then slows it down to the original rubato idea for an outro ending on the shifted pitch uh, from the valve that we heard from the beginning. Track 7, a, a Wayne Shorter tune, uh, Nefertiti. Uh, the trio starts it out with some building chord ideas in the piano. Palmer comes in with the melody while Genovese plays busy rhythmic right-hand figures underneath. Palmer's having some fun with the melody with a descending line that gets some growl into his sound. Has a kind of 8-beat feel, uh, but the rhythm hangs loose, especially uh, combined with what Genovese is doing. Uh, it gets more driving under some intense high and rhythmic improvisations from Palmer, and then it soon settles again for a reprise of the melody by Palmer and some softer but rhythmic improvisations. 
Track eight, another Palmer original, Raise the Love Ceiling. I don't know what that that's means, a, really, but uh, <laughs> that's a good title. sounds like a good idea. Uh, mm. It's a ballad with a lot of space in it. Palmer gets his warmer tone sound going here. It's a very slow four-beat feel. The simple melody line for trumpet has a few measures of gaps between the phrases, which alternate between higher, lower and higher registers. Uh, there's a bit of distortion in the trumpet tone here. I don't know if the... If the levels are too hot or he wanted this kind of uh roughness to the sound um but i mean being this kind of a you know uh ballad piece it's a straight composed piece pretty much without solos uh but it ends on a long held uh trumpet note uh fittingly track nine is uh kenny durham the great uh, jazz trumpeter's composition fair weather and i feel that uh palmer has a lot of influence from Kenny Durham. Uh, if you know his sound and way of phrasing, uh, particularly, I think stylistically, he's got a big influence on Palmer's playing, uh, which we don't hear a lot in modern trumpet players. So it's nice to sort of hear this influence going back. Uh, there's a lot of space in this tune here as well. A relaxed tempo, a nice bass pulse from Martin and light drumming from Scott. The tempo picks up and the rhythmic drive increases as Palmer reaches the end of the melody. Genovese is up for a solo. It's a bit unusual, going from skittish chords, runs, and then more funky things, and finally ending in some tricky rhythmic figures. Palmer has a solo uh, with some Kenny Durham-like sounds, a clearer articulation also exploring the upper register. He brings it back down to the mellow ideas for the melody at the end with a little staccato lick to finish it up. Track 10, another original from Palmer, Nameless. Uh, this one starts with a kind of hypnotic bass pattern and ghostly piano figures. Palmer brings in the soft 3-4 melody. It's an unusual and very soft piano harmonies that continue through a bass solo from Martin. Then Palmer comes in clear and bright, uh, higher in the register to start his short solo. It's intense, but still quite legato. Uh, he ties it in while softening the tone back to the melody, and the trio uh, rhythm section takes it out softly. Uh, 11, a uh, old standard tune by Ralph Ranger, Easy Living. Uh, it's an easy swinging waltz tempo for this standard. Palmer plays the melody soft and bubbly, launching into improvisation soon, and then coming back to the melody. He's light and swinging in contrast to Genovese, who comes in sounding like he just had a triple espresso. <laughs> He's really, really animated here. Uh, Palmer comes back uh, for some more melody lines before Martin gets a bass solo. And there's another little melody section once more. And then Genovese goes around on the chords while Scott has some time to uh, drum to the end uh, with a little final slowdown. We're going to end things up with uh, a Palmer original called It's a Brand New Day. This is a swinging tune, uh, a final switch to Rhodes piano. I like the interesting interval lines and then rhythmic bounce and syncopation in the trumpet melody. Palmer swings elegantly in his solo here. Nice phrasing with turns, little ornaments on uh, the melody lines and in his solo. Genovese has an energetic Rhodes solo. It's really swinging, tights the uh, driving staccato left-hand chord jabs, some speedy right-hand runs, and then uh, Palmer comes back uh, once more for a run through the melody. Well, uh, I mentioned 
yeah. that that road sound really isn't an ordinary road sound. It sounds no. kind of distorted, or there's some kind of effect on it. Mm. Um, I thought it was really odd. It really stood out. Yeah, and I don't know that that was a good thing for this track. You, you were kind of it was such an odd sound that you were paying attention to him yeah. all the time, even when the trumpet was soloing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can get some different piano effects. Uh, I don't know if this is a synth or an actual, you know, Rhodes Rhodes or what the vintage yeah. of it is or what the settings are um hmm. a bit over a bit much and then if you're listening in headphones the panning of the kind of phased sound uh goes around a bit <laughs> whose album is this anyway it's the trumpet <laughs> players right yeah 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 um anyway i thought it's an interesting mix of uh material we've got some standards and then covers of originals from jazz greats which is always great to do um you know once a a a jazz a musician makes a tune it shouldn't fade into obscurity forever it's nice that other people pick up on them uh, so it's nice to hear a Wayne Shorter tune and such here hmm. and then uh, Palmer's got his own originals in um, I, I like uh, you know a trumpet quartet no sax in the mix so we, the trumpet is uh, full force in the front of course that plays on the chops trumpet's a, a hard instrument to uh you need endurance for so you know it's nice to have a sax to offset that but when you only have the trumpet uh you've got a lot more responsibility here i like the interesting meter changes to the tunes especially with the dizzy gillespie tune and then that five eight that we hear too um and i like palmer's old style sound it's not that excessively dark tone that we hear a lot of players getting today he can still be very warm but he has that nice brightness that he can bring out when he wants. And he often plays softly uh, on purpose, which I like as well. Uh, I found his improvised ideas are very fresh. I'm often very surprised at the directions his solo takes, and I found all of his solos very intriguing. So I think uh, uh, he's, you know, he's gotten a lot of attention and called, you know, a player to watch and things. And I, I, I'm a believer now. I found that especially his improvisations are fresh, but he has an an old style charm to his playing. And so I'll be uh, interested in listening to anything else he records too. Yeah. I thought he sounded good, but the thing for me is that I, the, I kept being drawn to the pianist because he was really doing uh, so many odd things. Yeah, He's an odd player. Yeah. You know, the, um, the, the expression to photo bomb when you photo bomb, like someone's photo, you just uh, kind of right. go in there. Yeah. I feel like the piano kind of like, piano bombed this album in a way because <laughs> he had he it, these ideas that he has too what he plays he comes sound like they come from outer space oh, okay. um, he had mm. these Schomburgian isolated yeah. scale rips to spacey electronic sounds yeah. interstellar stellar scales um, his approach is to quickly ch change his approach when inspiration strikes and he'll go from section to section unpredictably yep. and he stood out I thought too much on this album, but I did enjoy the trumpet playing. And, you know, like you said, the odd time signatures, there's a lot of really good creative playing yeah. on this album. Yeah. But I don't know. I think, I think he could have like taken a little bit more of a backseat. I know, think we've had Genovese before and that's his character as sort of this unpredictable, uh, yeah. sort of bursting out character to his playing. Be okay. kind of interesting to hear him on his own where. Yeah. If he was on his know, own record, yeah. I mean, I'd want to hear that yeah. I think that'd be interesting but it's no. kind of like that it was reminding me because I I saw that uh, Pasquale Grasso has yeah. a new album out and uh, oh, you know he? we heard his uh, 
Did he put like album. eight albums out a year or something? Yeah, and we, <laughs> we liked his on one, so many records. His one solo album out, but then we heard him as like an accompanist, and he wasn't really suited for that role because <laughs> behind the vocalist, he was just sort of you know doing yeah. too many interesting things. He just couldn't resist. Uh, it was on that Samara know. Joy, the yeah, first that's track right. on that Samara, Samara Joy, Joy album. Yeah, yeah. Although he's and, uh, once the drums and bass come in, he's more tame. Like yeah, he'll kind of like yeah. lay back into the right. uh, accompanying role. But when it was just him and her, he was like, "Hey, here I am." You yeah, know? and <laughs> uh, yeah, it's kind of kind of yeah. like uh, too much in the background. But uh, right, right. yeah. Anyway, yeah, Jason Palmer. Uh, I like that old style sound. A little bit of Kenny Durham influence, and uh, someone who can play soft very well. Uh, we don't hear that a lot and not too dark. So check it out, trumpet players. Uh, yeah. Very good. Now, uh, the odd one out in the middle here. Uh, <laughs> so all the way from South Africa, which was what caught my uh, eye on this and a debut recording. So I thought, why not? Let's check it out. And I actually liked it a lot. Uh, although this is where my streaming frustrations uh, come Uh-oh. to bear. So, is, I've, I've been, he hasn't told me what he's going to say now because he, he said, I'm going to say yeah. something about this. Like, oh, I want to know what it is. And here yeah. I get to listen to the right. audience. So I'm as keen to hear this as you are. So we've got this uh, debut recording uh, from Munib Hermans and his quintet uh, on the milestone studios label i don't know if that's a real label or just a studio that puts this out which i'm suspecting uh which i'll get to in a moment uh it's called one for hp this came out last month and uh hp stands for hanover park which is uh i guess a district of cape town south africa where uh herman's uh, hails from and i guess this is uh, a place that uh you know might have some uh, problems uh and uh, a, a tough place to grow up uh, dealing with uh, the sort of leftover effects from apartheid and whatnot. Mm. Uh, a tough town uh, to grow up in, but uh, he grew up there and made good for himself uh, through uh, music. And I uh, wanted to give credit to this uh, district where he grew up and still lives, actually. And uh, he's a youngster, too, at 28 years old. And this is his debut uh, recording. And, uh, you know, I was thinking we've done a lot of international kind of uh, jazz musicians, but uh, we haven't found anyone from South Africa yet uh, in any of our recordings. So I thought, uh, oh, this will be interesting. And uh, and then I was thinking about it. You know, we come across a lot of uh, international people uh, living in an international community. And then I get to travel. Well, before Corona, I did anywhere mm-hmm. around the world. So I've been a lot well, of we places. Did, yeah. And... Uh, you know what? I haven't come across a lot of South Africans, but one story popped out in my mind. Do you know any South Africans, by the way? <laughs> there oh, was my... one here. I, I knew a was guy. Um, yeah. And I, I've met a few in Thailand as well. Oh, okay. Yeah. There's, yeah. It's not like I, they're all over the place. but I haven't you know. uh, met any uh, in Japan, but uh, it brought back a musical reference for me. Uh, yeah. So this goes all the way back to when I was in high school. Are you ready for this? Okay. Yeah, and uh, this goes back to I think it was 1987 or 1988 um, and I grew up in upstate okay Richard upstate <laughs> is that okay so, with you that's my brother yeah, it's his brother he, yeah. he doesn't like our New York accents but we don't have accents in New, in upstate New York that's why I speak this sort of non-distinct uh, 
American yeah. English accent. Anyway, I had tickets to see uh, Chick Korea Electric Band that had, uh, was it, uh, was it Vinny Colliuta or Dave Weckl? I can't remember. Uh, Chick Korea and uh, John Patitucci on bass mm. and Spyro Gyro. You remember Spyro Gyro? I remember Spyro yeah. Gyro. So From anyway, college days. I, I got tickets. They were the I, 70s band, mainly. Yeah. I went down mm. and I got tickets to see them at the Palace Theater in New York, you know, this uh, old traditional theater. But I wanted to get front row. I was there on opening day, but I couldn't. I only got second row. So, um, all right. So I showed up at the night and, uh, you know, I'm wondering who's got front row, but no, but there was a, the front row must have been like season tickets or something and people didn't show up. So just before the show started, this huge guy, I mean, he must have been 300 and some pounds, uh, showed up and sat down right in front of me, completely obscuring <laughs> my view of the stage. And he turned around and he said, hey, John Smythe, I played the Congas. And he was from uh, South Africa. <laughs> that was my first <laughs> South African image. And he talked to me through the whole concert and kind of distracted me. Anyway, I haven't met many South Africans after that. But uh, anyway, back to the music here. Um, they, they generally keep to themselves as far as I, I guess can so. tell. As, as far <laughs> as I can tell. Uh, anyway, I'm always interested to hear a new uh, trumpet player. Uh, and here's where my frustration comes comes up uh we've got the uh, quintet here uh well featuring munib herman's trumpet and flugelhorn uh kurt bowers on drums sean samby double bass blake hellaby piano justin Baleras alto saxophone that's the quintet that's what you can find online then i listen to the album and you're going to hear a nice guitar solo <laughs> unknown um trombone no idea and a female vocal no clue and i spent an hour <laughs> i spent an hour looking for uh who these musicians might be uh doing all kinds of searches and i don't know uh so you know that's the uh, frustration of streaming i couldn't find any credits uh to uh, who the rest of these musicians are uh added to the uh quintet and it's a shame because this is a really nice release. Uh, I got into it. Uh, and I don't know. I'm assuming this is all original material. Uh, maybe it's uh, Herman's uh, compositions. I don't know if there's any co-authors, but there's no no uh, credit information to be found. So we'll just go with what we know. Uh, the first right. uh, piece is called uh, Inner Peace, Part 1 and 2. Um, this starts out with a low bowed bass, uh, very interesting. Uh, cymbals and a single repeated piano note are added. Saxon trumpet come in on a lonely rubato modal melody. Uh, piano and cymbal fills swell behind. The trumpet and sax trade some call and response lines, getting more animated, as do the drum toms behind. And then the horns restate the melody. At about three and a half minutes, the drums start a slow, steady beat. Uh, and Sanby adds a slow rhythmic bass line. Uh, the horns add a new soft but syncopated riffy melody, and then a very patient electric guitar solo of tasty lines with space mm. between the phrases emerges. I wish I knew who was playing that. Uh, the horns come in with the riff melody for backing behind the solo. There's some tasty bass fills by Sanby, uh, and then the horns... Uh, 
continue uh, the riff to fade it out. A nice opening, uh, kind of a measured uh, start. Uh, I was intrigued from this first track. Uh, the next track, too, is called Influence. Uh, the piano cycles around some chords uh, for an intro with bass and drums at a medium tempo. There's a interesting female vocalization that comes in with a synthy type of flute sound uh, that comes in uh, for a melody on top. Uh, Hermans is up then for a trumpet solo. He builds it well. Uh, lots of exciting ideas, exploring outside the harmonies, adding some trill flourishes. Uh, next is a piano solo with rhythmic chords and cascading falls. Uh, the vocalization melody returns with male voices added for a chorus. Then mm. things fade down to just drums, bass with a few sparse uh, piano chords. Uh, then we get um, track three, uh, one for HP. And so the HP is uh, the Hanover Park, his place uh, that he grew up in uh, Cape Town. And uh, so here it starts with a jolly rhythmic piano opening of bouncing chords. They're joined by bass and drums. Uh, it gets to a samba-like beat, uh, sax and flugelhorn. So uh, Hermes is on flugelhorn then. Uh, join in with a melody line, uh, first in unison, and then it's harmonized. It's a happy-sounding uh, feel. The bridge is even more uplifting. Uh, Hermans gets a flugelhorn solo. It matches the mood with lots of tight rhythmic licks. Uh, Belarus is next on alto with nice flowing phrases over the Latin rhythm. And Hellebe gets a piano uh, solo with a more rhythmic and percussive solo. Then they all come back in to run through the melody uh, together again. Track four, Yet Another Day. This one begins with an ostinato bass riff uh, to start things out. Heavy piano chords and drumming join in giving a weary feel to that another day idea that hmm. everyone who works uh, knows about. Uh, it softens when the sax and trumpet come in on the unison melody. It's sparse, contemplative with ideas, with uh, lots of gaps in the ideas for uh, tight drum fills from Bowers. At the end of the melody, Sambi gets an intense groove going on the bass that leads to a break. Uh, the horns are back now with a hint of Freddie Hubbardish uh, ornamentation. A new intense Latin lick melody starts. Things soften down to cymbals and percussion textures for Boleros to blow an alto solo, and he takes his time building it up nicely. The pulsing Latin groove returns, driving him along as things get intense. Uh, it comes down soft again for a piano solo from Hellebee. Uh, he takes it through different feels and ideas, uh, sometimes bluesy. Uh, the groove forms again. Uh, it gets percussive. Uh, he's really pounding it out and venturing outside the chords. Uh, the piano here with some crazy runs ending down low. Uh, next is a drum and conga breakdown. Oh, there's conga on here too. I don't know who mm. plays it. <laughs> Maybe we'll find out someday. Uh, with bass yeah. hits for emphasis. And then a trumpet and sax return. Uh, for the Latin lick melody to take it out. Track five, Kopstad. Uh, drumbeat intro, joined by the bass and piano for a happy cycle of chords. Saxon trumpet add a happy gospely kind of feel melody. It's got a very infectious groove. Sambi gets a rhythmically snappy bass solo over some tight brush drumming before horns come back for some more melody. Hellebe has a uh, solo next, starting softly but bouncy. 
happy and building it up with some dazzling piano runs. Uh, the horns again come back with the melody and take it to the end. Interestingly, no trumpet solo here or in the previous tune. Uh, yeah. Hermans is very generous with the solos for his sidemen. Uh, well, I guess these are his original comp. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Maybe that's why. I want to mention, and this one, Copstar, yeah. the uh, the drum groove kind of reminded me a bit of uh, Kraftwerk's um, Trans-Europe Express. You know, it has that ah, kind of mechanical right. groove. Yeah. It just kind of put me in the mood of that. Right. I was like, oh, I wonder if they're kind of channeling that here. You know? Yeah, could be. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting. Uh, track six is uh, me. That's it, me. Uh, another me. ostinato <laughs> bass line. Uh, this time more menacing, uh, doubled in the piano left hand. Uh, it gets to a driving Latin even beat. On top is layered a vocalized melody again in unison with uh, Herman's um, Harmon muted trumpet uh, in this case. So the vocal and the mute sound really cool together. Uh, nice blend. At the end of the melody, it breaks into swing. Uh, for a section with some piano lines, then back to the vocal melody for a final strain with the Latin beat. Uh, Hermans is next up with a harmony muted solo. Uh, he brings the charm of the mute out really well with pressurized, tight phrases and articulation. Trumpet players will know what I mean uh, when you get that mute up to the mic and you can get some really percussive effects with it. Uh, Belairs is next on alto. Then they switch uh, to swing when he enters, uh, and he gets uh, more boppy in his approach to the solo. Uh, he quotes softly as in a morning sunrise, uh, the melody uh, as he fits it into uh, the progressions there before he wraps it up. Still swinging. Hellaby is next for a piano solo. Uh, as he reaches the climax, the groove changes back to Latin, uh, and the vocalization and trumpet melody return with bass grooving between the strains and some drum fills uh, the second time around to close it out with the bass. Uh, track seven, a song for Dukes, D-O-U-K-S. It's a slow waltzing intro with piano chords and a singing bass line. Uh, a legato horn melody line is added on top. Uh, there's a trumpet uh, in there too. Uh, it has a strain similar to My Grandfather's Clock, but it's not quite that but it'll remind you of that uh, there's a modulation to a section with a happy improvisations traded between uh, flugelhorn alto and trombone after trading they all join uh, in together uh, blowing as it grows over Halaby's percussive piano chords and then ties back to the melody it softens and slows to the end with the piano taking it out and uh, we're going to end up with track eight, The Bridges We Build. This one gets a slow, heavy groove and a cycle of chords that start out with a few improvised sax and flugelhorn licks that lead to a kind of a modal horn melody. has a lot of dynamic and rhythmic changes, then gets softer with more legato uh, phrases as the groove disappears. The trombone is still here and adds some nice thickness uh, to the other horn lines. Uh, the beat intensifies again as the horns doodle around and Bellares gets an alto solo. It's rhythmic. He really gets burning with an edgy <laughs> tone. I really like this solo. Uh, when he finishes, they go around the chord cycle a few times. Then the horns return with the melody. Uh, Bellares is not done yet and gets some finishing touches with his burning alto among the other horns with some more improvisations as they bring it to a close. I like this release. Uh, it's a lot of positive energy, inventive arrangements. I like Herman's playing too. Uh, 
he should play more. <laughs> Why he doesn't <laughs> solo on these other tunes, I don't know. But um, maybe he's just generous, giving a lot of uh, space to his bandmates. The alto sax particularly stands out. I hope we may hear more from him. Uh, these arrangements are good. His trumpet concept is nice. It's nice to hear something out of South Africa. Uh, but whoever put this release out, I wouldn't put it on him, but this studio or our record company, let's get together. Uh, let's get the recording information online at least somewhere so we can know who the other musicians are and get some more credits uh, here uh, so this can get publicized uh, and credits uh, properly. I want to know who the trombonist is, the vocal, the guitarist. Uh, I couldn't find it anywhere and I spent you know more than a half an hour searching uh, looking on all kinds of sites. So um, yeah, a great release. Um, let's get these musicians known. Um, more South African jazz. Let's get it out there. Yeah, what's going on there? I like this too. Um, it was a good, feel, yeah, a good feeling record, and so very welcome mm. in our current uh, um, yeah. times. Um, also, um, yeah, I like the adventurous soloing on this record too, especially towards the end. There was some really right. good stuff, like you had mentioned the burning solo at the end. Mm. Yeah, in general, so a, a nice discovery. Yeah, just upbeat. Uh, positive. I like the mixture of feels. It's got Latin-y things, a little gospel feel. Um, you know, it's interesting to see jazz go back to Africa and then, you know, what are they going to do with uh, the kind of rhythms and things? But mm -hmm. um, I felt that um, Hermans has got a a really good jazz concept rooted in the trumpet tradition. And um, But yeah, he's, he's kind of a modest player, Um I think he's capable of yeah, nothing wrong with doing, that, a, lot, you know. doing a lot more. Uh, but the the arrangements stand out kind of nicely in a variety. So, um, and it's his debut. So, um, yeah. hey, uh, to everybody go listen to it. Um, so, you know, it's this kind of uh, catch-22. We would never find out about this uh, if not for streaming. Right. Uh, it probably won't make it onto a disc that you can buy. But we can hear it, but yet we can't know really who's playing everything on it because there's not enough information out there. Did, did you so, check for a disc? There's nothing available? No, nah, I looked everywhere. Yeah, you can't, okay, can't find yeah. anything. Not yet anyway. So Okay. We'll see. Anyway, let's hope that uh, this develops into something more. I actually I sent a message to him through Facebook, but it's kind of last minute. So he, you know, oh, maybe see. you'll see it after this. Uh, okay. And uh, I told him we were going to talk about his recording. So. Okay. Uh, Anyway, we'll see what happens. All right, we're going to end up with uh, a big surprise. Uh, yeah, this, is this one. was the one I was kind of <laughs> wondering about myself. Too. Yeah, um, this is one. The more I listen to it, uh, the more it reveals itself. And um, I got the I same. Can't, I can't say much, too much about this. Um, and uh, I'm going to put listen to this more and more. Uh, now we're going to cross over to Sweden. Uh, to not the trumpeter, but the cornetist, Tobias Wickland, uh, with his latest release uh, came out last month, Silver Needle, yeah. and uh, which refers to a Chinese tea. And he oh. is a, uh, a avid tea drinker, apparently, uh, here. So uh, Wickland, uh, let's see, see. Swedish uh, cornetist, uh, also a great trumpet player. Uh, I guess he's about 36 years old now. Um, but he's uh, curiously developed a, a personal connection with the 
these days lesser heard cornet um yeah. and, and, he, and the mute and the mute <laughs> every yeah. one of these and, songs oh, has a mute yeah. on it mute yeah. especially the harmon mute with the stem in it uh which uh -huh. nobody uses i used to use it to play the pink panther theme uh for comedic effect but uh he's found some artistic <laughs> uses for it um mm. he got some uh attention for his uh 2019 debut album uh where the spirits eat uh magazines raved about it as one of the year's best albums and uh he's got a real uh wide range on the instrument with a mature voice and uh, he goes even further here with uh, this latest release Silver Needle uh, he's written most of the music uh, with a couple exceptions that we'll take a look at um, and uh, interestingly as I mentioned before he's a, uh, a uh, kind of tea drinking enthusiast and he says quote Silver Needle is also a very fine Chinese tea. In our part of the world, people just pour boiling water over a tea bag and the result is often boring. <laughs> I actually know, I, know people like him. Yeah. <laughs> knowing what tea And they're can all do, European. <laughs> knowing what tea can do and drinking it in the right way can open up great experiences. Silver Needle has been fermenting for 15 years, so it's strong and amazing. I drink a lot of it when I compose. It increases my creativity and allows me to fly high. And fly mm. high he does on this release. So it... You're going to have to listen to this. I'm not going to do it justice by talking about all of the things that are in this recording. Yeah, um, and you're going to have to listen to it more than one time yeah. because it makes such yeah. an odd impression the first time you hear it. I'm going to tell you, yeah. I'm going to definitely mm. buy this. Um, I'm thinking I'm going to buy it now too because yeah. you said that because I was thinking, do I want to buy this? I don't know. It's I, it's I a really odd album. And it's probably going to make my best of list uh at this point oh, okay. and we're halfway through the year i suspected uh, I it would after to. i heard i was like i bet yeah. russ is gonna really love this now um the, and we'll get into <laughs> why this is partly the instrumentation and programming is uh kind of uh two different approaches so wickland is on cornet and his rhythm session section is on bass uh las mork drums uh daniel Fredrickson, piano Simon told him. Now, on several of the tracks, we're also going to have a brass ensemble that f uh, sort of uh, plays with only drums added. Uh, so they take over all the harmonic duties. We've got an additional trumpet uh, to the mix, or, well, trumpet with cornet. Uh, Jonas Lindbergh, a trombone, uh, Karin Hamar, euphonium, Stefan Findin, and tuba. That will take over the bass role, uh, Magnus Wickland. I don't know if that's any relation to uh, Tobias himself or not. Um, so we're going to get various, uh, uh, how can I say, arrangements with different instrumentation. Um, and most of these are going to be uh, Wickland's original compositions, which we'll start out with, uh, Existence is Your Perfume. <laughs> A nice title. Um, yeah, it's already looking up. And uh, Wickland's puckish, I think this is a great adjective for his sound. Uh, cornet sound comes right out in the melody over the drum toms uh, that are beating out a 6-8 feel here. Um, piano and bass join in with the piano adding pretty descending figures as the beat changes up to an 
eight beat feel for a few bars. It's got this sort of different time shift in it. Um, Wickland gets lyrical and singing, uh, then brings back some staccato articulation, which he's so good at. Uh, his soloing is melodic and singing, soaring high with humor. Uh, Toldum takes a piano solo, starting with extended waves of sound, uh, picking up on that idea from that altered time feel uh, before getting sparse and then moving to some runs. Uh, Mork gets a rhythmic bass solo too, and then Wickland comes back for a short a reprise of the melody. But it's over too soon. This tune has a magical kind of feel to it that you don't want to end. Um, I was thinking exotic 1920s uh, yeah. French cafe jazz or something. Exactly. Something kind yeah. of. It doesn't really sound American, you know. It's kind of, uh, but it's got that, you know. His American music by way of Europe or something. Phrasing know? concept is this in the cornet and it's so great um his greatest influence is um you know louis armstrong but Mm. he also has absorbed so much of that 20s and 30s jazz feel Mm. uh in the phrasing and approach to the instrument but he presents it then in sort of very expansive modern kind of concepts uh it's it's really mind expanding uh in 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 the way the tunes uh, set out and expose themselves you're just going to have to listen to this uh, especially with the second tune uh called <laughs> nothing 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 and i was just my i only wrote whoa when i started listening <laughs> to this um now you're going to get the brass ensemble uh low trombone and euphonium notes and a rubato tuba bass figure that mm. set an ominous modal kind of uh, feeling to it. Uh, Wickland adds a weeping cornet with vibrato on top as cymbals rise and piano adds punctuated notes. Uh, Wickland was the notes with his uh, hand as the brass come to move together on the lines. This could become a Morricone soundtrack at this point uh, (laughs) with these weird feelings. Uh, A steady wood bass note uh, beat with cymbals form uh, the sparse piano notes and uh, corns uh, together. Wickland starts a breathy solo that has some kissy, puckish phrase endings before the unified brass <laughs> riff returns. And then Wickland goes on with <laughs> lyrical crying lines over rhythmic piano figures. The modal changes sometimes feel like a Mexican Western theme. As the brass come in for more backing, Wickland gains energy for some more wah-wahs and powerful lines with shakes. Uh, he brings back the melody theme and it softens to get more mysterious as the bass uh, drum continues uh, and then piano trickles. Wickland blows some airy and uh, spitty ideas before a final melody snippet with wahs. This is also very cool. I loved every <laughs> second of it. This is probably a... This album is, is is as much fun to talk about, I think, as it mm. is to listen to. Absolutely, you know? yeah. It's so weird. Yeah. Yeah. Um, track three, another original, uh, Molen Hopar, and I'm not sure how to pronounce this, like, uh, or something, uh, Swedish title, which means the clouds are gathering. Yeah. Um, and this one is very unique in that as I mentioned earlier he plays the harmon mute with the stem inserted so this is the metallic mute um, 
And, uh, you know, usually in jazz, you pull the center out of it and you get that, you know, uh, famed Miles Davis kind of sound. But he's got the the stem in it so that he can do the wah-wah on it. And uh, usually you don't do that <laughs> unless you want a comedic effect, but he does it. Uh, and it's very interesting results. So, so Wicklund was out the sad minor melody over the slow, steady beat of piano and bass notes. They're all right on the beat. Uh, he milks the vibrato on some of the longer notes for a fun effect. It's very sparse. Uh, there's a slight pause with pickup notes into a major section of the melody. Then it gets bluesy with some bubbly phrases and fun hand tricks of the mute. Uh, Toldum starts a piano solo of just a few notes tossed out with lots of space. Uh, he gets more legato and connected, but stays completely chilled out, like he took a handful of quaaludes, and you're not going to wake him up completely. Uh, it's so mm -hmm. chilled, it's cool. Um, he comes back, uh, Wickland, uh, with more wah fun, with a bluesy <laughs> solo and some tongued rhythmic scales. He whips it around with some crazy wide intervals, you know, high to low and multiple tonguing before coming back to the melody with a cute ending of some uh, bass uh, punctu uh, punctuation in his final pr phrases. Uh, really, very really cool uh, effects here. Uh, track four, the title, Silver Needle. Uh, an even one-note bass beat and dreamy uh, piano figures backed by cymbals start this one out. Wickland comes in with the funny melody with fluttering triplet subdivision. He's with the fast valve work. It's like a, almost like an oriental kind of tune uh, feel to it. Uh, I guess for the Chinese tea, huh? Yeah, could be. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it, it does remind... When my... Uh, my wife, who's Japanese, heard it, said, what is this, Chinese? <laughs> I said, well, it could be, because it's about tea. Um, it goes through different strains of melody, like uh, like you know an old-time march word or something, and then breaks into a speedy swing beat. Uh, Wicklin is up for this challenge of this speedy thing, blowing lots of rhythmic figures, speedy and almost boppy kind of phrased lines. Uh, the chase ends and things get quiet while the bass pulse returns for a piano solo. Uh, to begin, Toldum plays around exploring little rhythmic ideas that ends in a rising series of chords and a final low note. And then Wickland brings back that fluttering Chinese melody. Uh, it's cute, old fashioned, but yet new and fresh all in one. I really yeah. like this guy's concept. That's really remarkable about this whole album. Uh, it manages yeah. to be old and new at the same yep. time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, next tune, uh, it's a tune by Sam H. Sep Stepped. Rather, uh, comes love. Wow, this one uh, will set up straight to get this intro. A solo cornet <laughs> opening here. There's a frenzy of stuff happening that builds off some uh, minor bluesy ideas, puckish rhythmic figures, waz screams, unexpected modulations, midline. Uh, it ends just before one minute with a final bluesy lick. Uh, Wickland then plays the pickup notes to the melody and the rhythm section comes in swinging slowly on this old bluesy tune. Uh, Wickland spits out the melody notes in staccato fashion. Uh, Toldum is up for a piano solo, laying a lot of low rhythmic chords at first. Uh, he gets into some more rollicking ideas with tumbling phrases. Then Wickland comes back and he's in a playful mood. Uh, lots of puckish staccato play 
high shakes and then brings it down soft for the end to tie into the melody reprise. Uh, but it leaves you hanging with an out and a final resolved, resolved chord, uh, just sort of ends hanging there. Track six is called Thousand Flowers. This one begins with an interesting trombone and euphonium and a cornet rhythmic fanfare of open intervals that sound like they come from a lost civilization uh, in the rainforest. Uh, trumpet <laughs> trills and low brass support form below as Wickland adds mournful uh, legato lines above. The brass sections uh, have little leading phrases into different strains. Uh, Wickland then plays the pickup into the bluesy melody and the brass are harmonized below for kind of a psychedelic New Orleans trip. Uh, the melody has a lot of contrasting sections in this arrangement is just great. Uh, only mm -hmm. brass and some light drumming. Uh, there's a fun group growling phrase and little sections of answering rhythmic phrases between cornet and brass. Uh, Wickland is playing softly, but uh, shows his full absorption of Louis Armstrong's phrasing style here. He takes a section of solo over only the drums before the brass return. Uh, they grow through the initial melody strain again and then give some little vamping for some final thoughts from Wickland. Uh, this one is really fabulous. Uh, it stood out for its emotional expression. Uh, track seven, Endless Possibilities of Microscopic Moments. <laughs> Interesting title. You'll figure out what it means. Uh, some symbol work intro to Wickland ripping uh, little zipper phrases of the melody. They just zip yeah. up and down uh, into staccato note sections. It gets really swinging under his bubbling melodic phrases. Toldum has an adventurous piano solo over some interesting bass lines of Mork, which alternate between repeated notes and then walking phrases. Uh, Wickland comes back for a solo. I think the microscopic moments is the constant harmonic changes here. It's like some of uh, John Coltrane's songs that set up an obstacle course of uh, sort of harmonic um, and gymnastics to work through for the improviser. Uh, Wickland surfs the changes skillfully, keeping his rhythmic phrasing and bursting out with new ideas, uh, crazy things too. Uh, when he finishes up, it's time for a, a drum solo from Fredrickson that works into a final melody uh, with everyone joining into the end. Track eight, A Speck of Light. Uh, remember that intro to Nothing, Nothing, Nothing? Well, that idea comes back here, except the rhythmic riff that was in the tuba is now in Wickland's cornet and doubled in uh, Lindborg's trumpet. Uh, the mm. low brass come in under that with a shifting and swelling phrases. It's like an inversion of the idea. Uh, midway through, it gets a regular beat from the drums and the cornet and trumpet uh, figure gets a turbo boost of speed. Uh, mm. It just sort of... <laughs> launches into much more than it was before. The low brass drop out and then the cornet and trumpet diverge into different notes uh, before rejoining and then getting some trombone uh, added before the loping tuba and euphonium join in and the whole thing gets some trills to it. Uh, the trumpet kinda, and cornet blow out a final strong line to finish it. Yeah, uh, this kind of reminded me of jazzy uh, Philip Glass. Yeah. <laughs> kind of has yeah. all those looping way sort of out rhythms there. in it. Yeah. But that yeah. last riff figure becomes the intro of the next tune. So nice it sort touch. Of segues yeah. in nicely. Um, mm. it, it repeats. There's a pause of 
expectation that happens, but then in contrast, a low or a slow loping swing starts in the rhythm section uh, for the minor melody of the tune uh, that Wickland uh, blows over very fat and sassy. He gets really soft and lyrical here in contrast to that uh, percussive staccato thing he's he's uh, really good at. Uh, interestingly, uh, he also finds a spot to insert that opening riff in mm -hmm. uh, in there again, uh, remind, reminding you that it, you might hear it again, and you will. Uh, there's a modulation to major, and then a change of rhythm to double-time feel for a section, and then back to the loping minor melody. I told him, uh, then gets a solo piano, that is, that shows off his touch really well here, another side of him, uh, and his uh, articulation is nice with interesting melodic ideas. Wickland comes back for some fast, playful figures over drum encouragement behind him, uh, beating it out. He works himself into a frenzy. He gets up high, uh, some low trills that uh, come down before he settles back into a final emphatic run through the melody. On the soft section, he even adds some rapid, soft, multiple-tonguing. Uh, rather than ending on a chord, it all ends again with that intro riff that built off from the tune before. A very cool idea. And we're going to end out with a little nostalgic thing uh, that's very nice and fitting. Uh, that Lucky Old Son, a tune uh, composed by Beasley Smith and played by Louis Armstrong. Oh, a lovely brass choral arrangement right from the beginning. Uh, Wickland plays the melody delicately with restraint over the warm brass accompaniment. Uh, the euphonium has a low counterline to Wickland's coronet in a section uh, where the others drop out before they come back in. Uh, then with the trumpet having some nice trills underneath. Trombone gets the lead for a strain as well with some warm, mournful tones that only the trombone can produce. And they wrap it up suddenly after a final cornet strain with a little turkey call shake at the end of the note so that it doesn't <laughs> get schmaltzy at all. Um, this is definitely going on my best of list so far for the year. Wickland's style of playing is partially from a time capsule and partially modern. His composition and arrangement ideas are also matching to his style, uh, somewhat from the distant past and somewhat from the present or future. The result is something completely unique and a real joy to listen to. It just reveals more on each subsequent uh, listen. This is obviously music that he, as he alluded to, has developed over a long period of time and is well thought out. Um, it brings you back to a hundred years ago in his style of playing and yet encompasses all the styles that have come in jazz after that. Um, I really think this is a special recording. It's amazing that especially this New Orleans concept can reach Sweden and find... Uh, <laughs> A, well, a real, through records, right? Yeah, and and find a real mature expression with something added, uh, even you know, in this modern time when uh, Americans don't even appreciate uh, this music that came from our own land. Uh, so I think, yeah, Wickland is an anomaly, a, a unique uh, player uh, that channels the past, but also brings you know, futuristic things in the music uh, to that old style that he's uh, championed through also the cornet, 
right? Which nobody yeah. plays anywhere. That was my first instrument, by the way. Um, yeah. I played before I switched to trumpet, so I have a soft spot for that. I think it's just a big spider Beck's uh, yeah. instrument, wasn't it? Big spider yeah. Beck, uh, Rex Stewart, yeah. uh, with right. you know, Ellington. Um, this is a, a, a phenomenal experience listening to this, and I just keep listening to it again and again. Uh, I can't say enough about it. And again, this is why you need to listen to the adult music podcast because who's going to yeah. cover this in America? And this is a record, if you like jazz, this is really isn't something, it's something you need to hear whether you're going to like yeah. it or not because it's yeah. really unique. Yeah. It's not going to push jazz forward or anything like that, but it's just, yeah, it's an anomaly. It's just something really unique yeah. and special. I called it wonderfully weird. Mm-hmm. And I thought that... Uh, I said uh, in, an interesting trumpet recording by a trumpeter with an encyclopedic mind for musical humor because there's a lot of really oh, funny yes. things happening yeah, as well. Very funny, yeah. Yeah. Very, very. He, he plays into a, the past a lot for his sounds, but comes up with unusual situations for these old-fashioned ways of playing. Uh, I'm wondering, yeah, it's 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 really unique. It's uh, it's something that needs to be heard. Okay, so. Two thumbs up here. Just just because of what it is, it's really yeah something unique and special. I think. I think so too. Um, mm. yeah, there's so many. There's so many. You know, cookie cutter plays. This happens in every genre, right? You, whenever something comes out and it's the new thing or something, everyone copies it. You know, you remember grunge, right? You right. Right. Nirvana and a couple other original bands, and then. Everybody was sounding like that. And yeah. then it got boring and, uh, you know, it happened in punk music and everything yeah. else. Uh, in jazz, too, everyone copies. And you know, as I said before, the, the modern kind of trumpet sound is this dark Teutonic kind of uh, thing mm. that's been kind of, I don't know, uh, grafted in from class those classical sounds of trumpet. Yeah. And uh, everyone starts to sound the same. And you're like, what happened to all those blazing high you know trumpet tones and then when i hear a player who is outside of the box like we heard with uh jason palmer uh mm-hmm. getting back to those kind of old you know trumpet tones that can vary with the material and getting a brightness to it i'm like oh this is refreshing and then hearing this is like oh wow <laughs> this is like back to different eras uh but yet surprisingly modern and fresh at the same time uh, I get really uh, enthused and excited that uh, you know jazz will never die because there will be someone who reinvents a sound and adds something new to it. Uh, so it's very exciting. Yeah, I think we might be done with the whole like you know, see Miles Davis, John Coltrane pushing jazz forward to its next step. I mean, I, I feel like that era is just done, and we've got what we've got, and people are just going to reinvent certain elements of that, and. Um, I don't. Yeah, this this sort of is a unique take on yeah the past and present. It's it's really yeah, yeah. it's really something. It's hard. It's hard to really say what it is. Really. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I yeah. think we're gonna still hear you know what we've heard. But, but on my the- but I but I mean I heard it. It's kind of like those things like you know I heard it so I I know it, what, what's what's the thing they say. I know I know something when I see it or hear it. All oh, right, right. This I know this is good because I heard it. It sounds yeah. good. You know, it's kind of it's it sounds unique. So and I haven't heard anyone else do this. Well, so that's what it is. I can't really me, explain it though. We've mm. heard a lot of jazz, um, and I, I purposely tried to be as international as I can on my picks, and 
and and hoping you know we've heard you know we've heard some Israeli jazz, right. we've heard uh, you know other places where um, the players bring in their own cultural right. background and uh, you know use that as sort of a creative infusion into the material. And I really like that. Um, yeah. But then we've heard some kind of surprising anomalies where, you know, whereas we, we talk to a New York jazz musician and say, no, New York, it's only New York because New York has that <laughs> swing. But then yeah. we heard, in, and it's true in a, in a bit, there's a lot of Scandinavian jazz that is sort of amorphous and dark right. and out there. Yeah. But then we've heard the sort of antithesis to that with Snorri Kirk, that right. sort of old style swinging. And, you know, now we've got here Wickland. Uh, <laughs> there's no accounting for this going back to that Armstrong model, but then adding all these new things into it. So, it, it, you know, it's not only players bringing their cultural background. It's just um, maybe focusing on, you know, some great point at one period and then expanding on that too. But anyway, anyway I'm secure in the idea that uh, there'll be players from all different places who will have these uh, creative infusions and then bring something new uh, well bringing back something we like from the past uh, jazz has enough history for that and this is one right. everyone should check out so uh, Silver Needle Tobias Wickland uh, I think any trumpet players and jazz fans should definitely hear this one all right, there we go. All right, I think we're coming up to a record length. This might be a we, we may one. have hit the three-hour mark, but we I can't tell. Have. I don't remember I where tell. we started. Anyway, I think mm. there's enough here on this program to make <laughs> it worth it. There's certainly enough. <laughs> yeah, so uh, definitely check out these recordings. Um, yeah, this would be the best. Yeah, this the Tobias Wickland, I would say, would be the best recording I heard this week. And, you know, oh. the other trumpet concerto one would be the best classical one. Yeah, so best classical one. Otherwise, yeah, uh, yeah everything's nice. Uh, check it out, I would say, in the jazz. Well, it's not all nice, though. We talked about that. Yeah, right? well, yeah. <laughs> in jazz, it was all nice. Okay. Yeah. Classical, yeah. I don't know. I'll have, yeah, we'll, see. well, I don't know what I'm going to have next week. I've got to, we're going, we're going French next Are week. Are we doing right? the French thing? Okay. We're doing okay. French episode number three. It's about time. I'm we've, ready. We've uh, laid off that for an hour. I'm uh, ready to be Frenched again. I'm, I've huh? got my French uh, things lined up, uh, so we'll okay. do that French number three uh, next yeah. episode. Well, sounds good. I look forward to that. We'll have the uh, the playlist up on our Deezer account and Facebook page uh, tomorrow after this mm. episode is released. So if you want to check things out early and you stayed with us this long, uh, be sure to check that out. Uh, before we sign off, uh, thanks again to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our neon glowing logo that always stands out on uh, all the podcasts. And we appreciate that. Uh, once again, uh, please do like or subscribe on whatever platform you listen to us on. And uh, that helps us get some new listeners we appreciate that if you want to contact us directly it's adult music podcast all one word at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you and uh look forward to all things french number three <laughs> <laughs> next week for episode uh 68 any uh final closing things mike before we go out uh no <laughs> I have absolutely right. nothing left to say. I've said everything. said everything this week. <laughs> anyway, so look forward to a, a French experience next week, and uh, we'll have that up tomorrow. Uh, so check it out after you listen to this. Hey, and, hey Rich, uh, how was that French accent? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway. Mon Dieu. 
We'll be back with some uh, things all French next I'm week. I'm feeling French already. I am too. Mm. Uh, so until then, keep listening and we'll see you next time. Thank you.